What's up, you hooligans? It's Kevin Kelly, your host, once again, for another episode of the Anti-Podcast, where I interview all sorts of individuals who have found a different way to go about their success. Today's guest is definitely no exception. Before we get into that, just have to acknowledge that it has been a minute since my last podcast. It is hard to schedule these little suckers. Uh, it is hard to make them. Everything about it's not easy, but that doesn't mean shit because we keep on doing it anyways. Trying to get better, trying to find out more about people. I'm genuinely curious about everybody I sit down and talk with, um, but sometimes it's just hard to get folks when you're available and when they're available. So just be patient. I'm going to probably put out a couple this week if time abides. Uh, my good friend Adrian Octavius Walker has some news this week. He was uh, he was selected for the National Portrait Gallery, the Smithsonian National Portrait Gallery. One of his photos, I can't remember the title of it, was selected to uh, for the Outwin Awards 2019, and it will remain there permanently, I think, of their permanent collection. So that's pretty badass. Be sure to check out uh, my podcast with Adrian a couple weeks back. Beautiful mind. Got a, I was able to hang out with him recently. His show in Columbia came to a close, and we were talking about all sorts of stuff, eating some vegan food at Lulu's on Grand in St. Louis City, uh, and uh, just discussing a whole bunch of things. It was great to catch up with him. Recently, also, I finished the book Lonesome Dove, almost 900-page Western that a lot of people consider to be one of the best Westerns ever written. I would have to agree. It was such a good book. It felt like a companion, uh, reading it every morning as, as kind of a habit and, and just getting absorbed by the story. It was so good. I know there's a miniseries out there that a lot of people are familiar with, but I, the book is just a, a different level of connecting with characters and pretty pretty progressive, actually, for a Western. Uh, he writes women very well, the author Larry McMurtry. And, um, you know, without shying away from the obvious, the obvious uh, non-woke activities that were happening in the 1860s, 1870s. <laughs> Uh, a great book. I heavily recommend it. Five stars on Lonesome Dove. But for now, my next guest, Blaine Deutsch, he is a true polymath. I hate that fucking word. Polymath and sapiosexual are probably my two least favorite words. <laughs> you hear them and they cause instant cringe and and it doesn't really matter what they stand for. But Blaine is a true renaissance man. He is a painter, a artist, a designer, producer, printmaker, cyclist, writer, yada, yada, yada. This man dabbles a bit in everything and is a, a very kind soul. Uh, we get into talking about his career uh, thus far, having worked with the photographer Corey Rich and producing a lot of Corey's shoots uh, along the years, and then also getting into climbing quite a bit. Uh, he was able to work with people such as Alex Honnold and Tommy Caldwell. I have a little story in there about almost dying in Tommy Caldwell's Honda Civic, driving through a snowstorm one many years ago, 10 years ago. Shit. Um, and then we kind of uh, just kind of 
pick up on a bunch of different topics. He, he calls himself an amateur astrophysicist. We get into a lot of artwork, nature, beekeeping. Man, this, this podcast has got a little bit of everything. So uh, if you're not feeling one of the topics, just wait five minutes, and I'm sure it will change to something that you're more interested in. As always, the notes are available at podcast.anti-agency.org. Uh, they should also be available in each episode, though maybe not formatted as uh, clearly. Still trying to figure all that out. A uh, lot of things to figure out with this podcast, but I'm still doing them, and that's all that fucking matters. So sit down, sit back, enjoy this podcast, whatever type of day you're having. It's raining balls here in St. Louis, but hopefully wherever you are is a little bit nicer, little sunnier, little warmer. Slide those headphones on and listen to us jabber. Mr. Blaine. Mr. Blaine. Hello, friends. Deutsch. 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 That's what I always thought. Um, man, where do we even begin? There's so many different directions. I know. Let's get this even just a little, a little bit closer. closer. I'll make sure everybody can hear you loud and clear. Uh, driving here today, I was thinking about, okay, you know, where where did our friendship start? You know, mm-hmm. where did our conversations start? And it's like so many different directions kind of all at once. Yeah. And so this could go wherever we wanted to do. And it's going to be fun. <laughs> Hold on to your butts. <laughs> Strap <But> held. <laughs> Uh, I think we met at our mutual friend, Charlie Kalalas. That's correct. I remember it was a birthday. Yeah. And uh, either Matt Dale or Charlie introduced me to you. And I think we just started talking about I think it was climbing. Emily Clasing, as a matter of fact. Oh, that's right. Our friend across the pond. Hi, Emily. I was, miss you. I was working with her at the time. Yep. And she's like, oh, you should be blind. And behold. Because there's that like word rock climbing. It's like, oh, wait, I know this one other person that talks <laughs> right. about this. You guys should be best friends. Yeah. And like, that's the funny thing is that uh, in the Midwest, um, when you meet other people, especially this is what, you know, 12 years ago or more, you're like, oh, rock climb, like you climb too? You know, there's no, there's nowhere to climb around yeah, here, but you climb. Yeah, this is like pre-gym, pre-SOL, <laughs> pre-like anything else. So if you climb, you must be like getting in the car and driving in, overnight to Colorado or something. Yeah, and I was um, I was climbing at upper limits quite a bit back then and probably at the peak of my ability uh, before, you know, you get an uh, injury and it just knocks you down a level. Yep. Um, and and I'm like, yeah, cool. You know, oh, another person to talk about outdoors with. And then I, I, the more we were talking, I'm like, holy crap, this guy is really in it. You know, I, th- I think that was the, the first uh, takeaway. Yeah, I was, was like, this isn't just some dude that climbs. This is a guy that's involved with the world. I was deep in that world for a while. It, yeah. was, it was a good number of years, and uh, it was a lot of fun. It was chaotic, but uh, chaotic in all the best ways. And, uh, you know, just the what my daily looked like and the people that I was with was looking back on it now was kind of insane. Yeah. So, I mean, what were you doing? So at the time, actually, when we met, I had just come off of a gig. I had spent about seven years as the producer for Corey Rich, um, photo or photographer, director. And uh, Corey is arguably the name in adventure sports photography. Yeah. And, um, you know, through a fortuitous uh, series of events, um, I went from being an art director you know, contracting him for photo shoots to becoming his studio director and then producer. And when I first sought him out as a photographer, I was looking for authentic. You know, mm-hmm. that's 
you know, that continues to be kind of the word in advertising, but, you know, I was really looking for authentic. And so to do that, I kind of, you know, at the time, what we're doing when we pick photographers, you pick a black book and, you know, who's the, who's got the glossiest images in here and who's looking good. And I just pushed those to the side and I went to the bookstore and got like backpacker and outside and all the magazines started flipping through and just were looked. you, you were hiring him for a campaign. Yeah. This was for a Bud Light summer. Oh my gosh. Back in, I want to say like 2001. What was the brief? Uh, they basically wanted to do something that wasn't NASCAR, that wasn't beach, that you know uh-huh. appealed to the uh, you know the more active lifestyle. And what year was it? I think it was two thousand one. Okay, yeah. So kind of um, adventure sports uh, was maybe coming out of its um, toddler years, or yeah, we were. It was right <laughs> around that phase that you know snowboarding was added to the Olympics, yeah. and you know you're starting to see mountain climbers in you know. Coors like commercials and you know it's starting to you know polo was starting to show you know their their you know their clothing on people at the crag which is completely ridiculous but you know it was starting to become something that was you know it's sexy and it's cool and it's like hey this yeah. is what the kids are doing now and cliffhanger so, had come out exactly <laughs> <laughs> the best climbing movie ever made. <laughs> no comment um i actually think i've heard rumors that they're going to try and remake that with jason momoa Oh, that would be hilarious. I'd it, watch that. It would be. Have you seen that video of uh, Honold talking about climbing in movies? Yes. Oh, I think it was like a GQ spot. Yeah, it's hilarious. Yeah, yeah it's so good. <laughs> I don't know if he addresses this in that piece or not, but I had read something the other day that was real disappointing. Um, somebody was climbing in Utah where they shot the opener for Mission Impossible 2, I think it was, where oh, you know, yeah. Tom Cruise is doing a ridiculous Iron Cross in sandstone. Yes. And they were climbing that same area, and there's plastic bolted to the sandstone. <laughs> Wait, there's holds? Yeah. <laughs> From the movie? From the movie. What? Yeah. Oh, my god. I mean, problem one that they put them up there. Problem two is they didn't take them down. It's just it's yeah, ridiculous. Yeah, that's ridiculous. Yeah, yeah. Uh, that's recent. Yeah. Because that movie was made forever ago, right. like 15 years ago. Yeah, and somebody just came across them. It's like, wh- why? I have so many questions. Yeah, that's yeah. hilarious. Um, well, I know that he did, not that this matters, but... <laughs> I know that he did do some of those moves somehow because, you know, it's Tom Cruise. Right. He has to do his stunts. And if I'm not mistaken, I think, I hope I'm thinking the right movie. I think Dan Osman actually did some of the climbing in that film. Oh, did he? Yeah. Okay. Um, No, I think it was Dean Potter, wasn't it? I don't know. I want to say Dean's would have been too young at that point. I'm not certain. Okay. I want to say it was Dan. Rest in peace. Both of them. Um, I'm not familiar with Dan. Dan was... uh, Dan was kind of like the the first like, you know, like crazy aggro climber. Mm-hmm. Um, he's got a there's a short piece on YouTube. Um, he's climbing a, a pitch on Lover's Leap in Tahoe called Bear's Reach, mm. and he speed solos it. Oh wow! And you know it's a I want to say it's like a, maybe a three pitch, mm-hmm. and he does it in like a minute and a half. Oh, I think I've seen yeah. that. Is that where he just runs it like he runs up it and the yeah. kind of the 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 one like the the crux of it when you're soloing it he does is a super huge dyno huge dyno yeah and I mean that's <laughs> that dyno is optional I mean you can climb yeah. through that and not dyno but you know that was dano style he you know threw it in there um so you were working with an ad agency for Bud Light and trying to figure out a good outdoor photographer outdoor adventure sports mm-hmm. photographer. And his stuff just came across as most authentic. Yeah, there, was, there wasn't probably a whole bunch to choose from at that point. No, at that point there were you know a handful, you know maybe yeah. half a dozen, and you know those are guys that are still doing it now. 
um, you know, still at the top of the game, but uh, going through the magazines, you know, looking in just the, the gutters, you know, looking at the, the photo credits, mm-hmm. uh, not even looking for names at first, just looking at photos like, you know, okay, this is what I'm trying to capture. This is what I want it to look like. And, uh, you know, his name just kept coming up, you know, image after image, like, this is great. This is great. So called him up. And uh, it was really funny because here, you know, talking to him and his then studio manager on at the time, mm-hmm. you know, they totally confident and they're like oh absolutely this sounds great you know we've got it all put together and whatnot and you know after the fact learned that was the first commercial gig he ever did <laughs> so how, um, old, how old were both of you let's see that would, i would have been 25 ish okay Corey's two years younger so okay yeah wow and he was only no 20. no 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 let's see let me let's see that was 2001 so i was uh 27 27 okay. yeah and he was like 25 yeah it's funny. And so, yeah, so we uh, ended up doing a couple shoots together, became mm-hmm. really close friends throughout the process because we ended up, you know, aside from the shoots, you know, I'd go out to Tahoe and climb with them. And, you know, we just, awesome. um, you know, he got to know my family and all that. And then calls me up one day and he's like, hey, I'm looking to grow the business. Um, you know, I need somebody that knows the agency world. Do you know of anybody? And, you know, total knee jerk reaction. I'm like, what about me? And there's kind of the silence. He's like, I was hoping you'd say that. <laughs> so, yeah, so six weeks later, uh, my family and I are in Tahoe. Oh, my God. And uh, at the time, it's like I knew that I knew the, the arena that he was playing in because, you know, there would be times that, uh, you know, he'd be staying at the house. You know, he'd be in town to visit and, you know, he'd get a call and he's like, I need to get on a plane. I need to get back home. You know, Tommy's in the valley about to do something. Tommy Caldwell. Yeah. And, you know, that happened a couple of times that, you know, it's like, hey, something's about to go down. and I need to be there. Yeah. And so it's like I understood the players that he was playing with, but it wasn't really until I was in the studio and, you know, the 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 regulars you know coming at the door and calling you know it's you know we'd have you know Tommy was you know one of those guys he had a key to the house you know he just you know walk in and um you know Fred Becky was there all the time you know Fred was you know that you know he's one of those people I look back at and you know my daughters grew up with Fred which was pretty cool and you know they're they'll probably go to school with you know their beware of Becky shirt on and kids are like who is that and you know my youngest is like he's a badass and it's like okay she she got it i um, need to see dirtbag still oh it's so good the documentary it docu- it captured him so well uh-huh because he was i mean he was just this lovable grump yeah but he was so focused but not in a you know, a lot of times people get focused on something and it gets really annoying it's like he was so admirable with his focus yeah um you know, he he truly wanted to spend every waking hour in the mountains. And if he wasn't climbing, he wanted to tell people and share like what he had done. I went to pick him up one time. I get to the airport and uh, he had arrived a little bit earlier and he's sitting there at a table working on what would be his next guidebook. <laughs> and he's got this, you know, duffel bag at his feet with a bunch of like FedEx envelopes in there. And that's his filing system. And I mean, this was like, you know, somebody could have, you know, grabbed this duffel bag and had like the holy grail of climbing because, you know, written in Sharpie on the outside of all the FedEx was like, you know, uh, Yosemite, Alaska, Mexico. I'm just like all these like, you know, that was his filing, like how he like documented all his climbs. Is it how he technically made money? Yeah, he was, uh, he made his money through publishing. Really? Yeah, he he published, he had a bunch of guidebooks and a bunch of books about, you know, just about climbing and that's cool. Yeah, I was, uh, I guess I never understood how he did make money mm-hmm. uh, because, you know, <laughs> you're just like, why well, you see this guy pop up from time to time throughout the mm-hmm. popularization of climbing. Um, and it was just like, I, this is just some old dude just climbing, Yeah, you know, uh, 
thumbing his way across America well, to that's get it rides. Too. Yeah, he. I mean, he lived very frugally too. You know, there he famously had a you know paper McDonald's cup in his front seat, and you know because the you know he was told that you know it's like you get free refills on that. And, you know, granted, they probably met, you know, at that visit. <laughs> but, yeah, he'd go into McDonald's and get his free refill. And, <laughs> That's and, hilarious. Yeah, he, uh, he didn't, uh, you know, he didn't prescribe to, you know, like the fancy, you know, camping food. You know, yeah. he'd, you know, go camping. He'd, you know, pack like a sausage in a one-pound bag of peanut M&Ms, and that's all he needed. That's, that's amazing. Okay. Uh, and how, he passed away last year? Um, it's been a couple of years now. Or a couple of years? Yeah, yeah. Just from natural? He, I mean... Something that you don't really notice until like you're standing next to him in a room. He had a, a pretty decent sized divot in his head. He had uh, brain tumor removed years ago oh. and didn't slow him down at all. But, but yeah, I mean that many decades just living in the elements and just pushing oh, your body to the limit. You know, he. I mean, he spent a lot of time at altitude, and yeah. that's just rough on the body. It, it, it is. It is, but is it? Isn't it like beneficial though too? Like yes, you're, and no. you operate at a better. You operate at a better level at the time. Mm -hmm. Um, but they're starting to find some connections between living at altitude and like life counter. Yeah. Counter longevity. Mm -hmm. Um, just because it's, uh, you know, you're exposed to more radiation because you're in thinner air. Um, working with less oxygen, you know, it's just like dumping antioxidants into your body Yeah, or not, I guess not the antioxidants, the whatever antioxidants are trying to kill the oxidants. It's the just, accidents. Yeah, it's yeah. just like dumping crap into your bloodstream and just causing your joints and your muscles and your tissues to break down quicker. But then again, he made it to 89. He did. So, he did. you know. <laughs> even when he passed, you know, it, it was, even though he was, you know, he was in failing health and, uh, you know, we were still all convinced he was going to outlive all of us. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, no doubt. I mean, he just seemed very spry for his age. That was, uh, that I mean, was anybody one... climbing in their eighties. Exactly. <laughs> I mean, it was funny when we were living out there, you know, Fred, you know, and just, you know, he'd, he'd walk into the studio and, you know, hunched over and he has, you know, his knuckles were the size of ping pong balls just from, yeah. you know, like Arthur Richards. Richards. Exactly. <laughs> and, you know, he'd be, you know, he'd be in the studio one day. We, uh, one day I was work, helping him with, uh, um, the last book that he put out, uh, was published by Patagonia and it was mm. his like classic climbs. It was called Alaska to Mexico. And I helped him, you know, edit the photos for that. And mm-hmm. so we're sitting there going through photos. And then the next morning, phone rings at like seven o'clock in the morning. Hey, it's Becky. Let's go climb. I want to go to Donner Pass. And it's just like, I was just like, <laughs> that was his day. It's like, that's all he, he was so, had such a singular focus. Yeah. And it was beautiful. Yeah, it is. Yeah. Um, were you interested in like, what was your youth like? Uh, because you kind of, it's, you know, somewhat stumbled into this yeah. livelihood. Um, I've, I've always loved the outdoors and I've always been active, um, mm-hmm. you know, growing up to the typical, you know, played a little league baseball forever. And you were know, you in Missouri? I, um, I grew up in the suburbs of Chicago, Okay. moved to St. Louis, um, right before high school. Oh, okay. So, um, but yeah, definitely, you know, Midwest upbringing, um, mm-hmm. played the typical sports, but then spent a lot of time camping and fishing and all that. And, um, as I, uh, got a little bit older, I would say probably about 15, I discovered, you know, bikes are better you're good for a lot more than just cruising around the neighborhood yeah and like thus began my love affair with bicycles and yeah. it started with a road bike um a couple years later uh got on a mountain bike and was like you know this is this is perfect it's like i'm i'm hiking at speed mm-hmm. and i love it mm-hmm. and so i'd always been um you know really in tune with the outdoors started climbing you know gym climbing and occasional you know outdoors um when you know locale you know allowed and so I definitely had, you know, a very pedestrian, 
you know, understanding and appreciation for climbing. Sure. Um, but I knew enough about it to know that, you know, when I talked to Corey and, you know, heard him talking about the people, it's like, okay, this is, this yeah, is legit. legit. <laughs> and then, you know, moving out to Tahoe and it's like, you Where'd know, you go to college, Iowa state. Okay. Yeah. I, I couldn't escape the Midwest for a long time. It was rough. Yeah. yeah. No, me neither. There's no climbing in Iowa. No, I, I, I wouldn't there's, imagine there would yeah. be. <laughs> there's no like riser gain in Iowa at all. Riser fall, it's just, it's flat. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and it's like especially when you get the bug mm-hmm. right at the beginning, it's kind of all you want to do. Totally. And um, and it's so frustrating because, like, I learned in the gym, mm-hmm. like a lot of people in the Midwest. Um, and then the nearest crag is three hours away. So right. you know, it's like uh, it's, it's a commitment <laughs> it's, to go outdoor climbing. Right. And it's so funny. I remember when I briefly moved out to Estes Park and uh, hung out with Becca and some other friends. The first night out in Estes, we were doing a, a climbing competition at the gym in Boulder. Nice. I know I that gym. I can't remember. Do you was know it what's the spot? The spot. Yep. Yeah. And I was killing it. Like, I haven't, you know, I was at the peak of my climbing abilities and just like nailing all these hard climbs. And, you know, I think it was like a point system. So, like, every time you complete a route, you get points. Oh, yeah. Like higher points for the higher rated climb, that sort of thing. Yeah. 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 And so, like, I killed all my friends. And then the next day we went out to Bumpy's Ridge. Yep. And I, I was it, like... Is it Bumpy's or Lumpy's? I think it's Lumpy's Ridge. Lumpy's. Yep. Lumpy's Ridge. And um, it was like I was a beginner climber. I was getting spanked. <laughs> I was like, <laughs> I have no idea. I couldn't, I couldn't get up anything. Right. Like it was night and day completely mm-hmm. different. And so it was, it was just funny as like a re-education into climbing. Like I had literally no idea how to climb mm-hmm. real rock. Well, it's impressive the the number of people that are out there that have just like killed the game that have started in the gym, you know. True. Alex Honnold started in the gym. Yeah, Beth Sharma. Ron Sharma started in the gym. Yeah. You know, it's like, you know, to, but there's a lot to be said too for like, you know, the, the skills don't, the strength translates, the skill doesn't necessarily translate. But then yeah. once you get on the rock, it's just like, it's a whole nother world. I mean, I have a great friend who is, um, he learned on real rock mm-hmm. in Australia and anytime we go to the gym, he just gasses out. Yeah. But we'll go on a trip and he'll start, you know, we'll, we'll get there, eat, drink some whiskey way in, late into the night, wake up next day. Everybody feels terrible. He probably threw up. <laughs> I'm not going to say who it is, but, and he'll just like lead uh, a 511. Yeah. And I'm like, okay, <laughs> there's a lot of things here yeah. that I'm just so confused about. Mm-hmm. You know, how can he just be so natural on real rock? suck in the gym yeah and also how can you lead that with a hangover after you just threw up in the bush <laughs> yeah, it's a, it's a whole different uh mindset just all different muscle memory i'm definitely and mental and men, absolutely mental yeah I, i'm jealous of the the upbringing that my daughters had for the years that we lived in tahoe my mm-hmm. uh, both my daughter's first um pitch uh, outdoors was the first pitch of the nose oh, it's man. just like come that's on that's crazy yeah. dude <laughs> where, where do you go from there so <laughs> And then moving back, how was that? It was, uh, it was rough. Um, you know, the, you know, it's such an amazing playground out there, uh-huh. but, uh, you know, California is a, a rough place to live if yeah. you're not local. So, yeah. you know, that, that was, that was definitely one of the challenges. Uh, the, the one thing that I did, and this was kind of the conversation my wife and I decided that we're moving back was like, okay. I'll agree to this, but I'm getting a new bike. And so that was just kind of like, you know, <laughs> her thought was, okay, if that's what, you know, it's going to take, you know, then so, you know, I started riding more than ever. So, yeah. Well, I, I don't want to skip ahead too much because, um, 
after you said yes to Corey, what kind of projects then did you start working on? And also, I think something that I'm very curious in and would like to have you explain further is the producer's role. Because um, I think that's kind of a mystery sure. to most people. Yeah, that's uh, that for a long time has been, you know, even, you know, my family and, you know, friends that aren't in the photo industry. It's kind of like, okay, so you're a photographer? No. <laughs> so um, I'll talk first just the, the types of projects that uh, that we were doing. So Corey already had a, a really good foothold in the outdoor industry. So mm-hmm. we were, you know, right off the bat, we were shooting for Patagonia and Marmot and the North Face and, and brands like that. Uh, but really wanting to get into the, you know, much more of the, mainstream commercial world. Mm-hmm. So, you know, by the, it, it ramped up pretty quickly. And, uh, you know, I, I can't say that I, you know, take credit for, you know, throwing Corey's name around made my job real easy. Mm-hmm. Um, just because, you know, to put his book in front of people, it's like, okay, he, he gets it. Let's do this. So, um, you know, we started doing, you know, bigger commercial projects outside of the adventure world. And then that eventually led to, you know, projects with Apple and Microsoft and, you know, more with, a, B, and Bev, and you know brands like that. So, uh, how did he like have such rapid growth? Was it because he had been shooting that stuff as a teenager and early adult years, and then like climbing magazines or yeah, climbing magazines? Um, you know, Patagonia was the Patagonia catalog was kind of like the best portfolio for anybody in the industry at that time gotcha. you know, in the outdoor industry. And uh, you know, the story he tells is uh, he took six months off. Um, you know loaded up his car with, you know, a couple hundred rolls of film and just went and climbed and camped wherever he could and shot everything he could. Mm-hmm. And uh, got back to, I think it was his dorm room at the time, and, you know, edited down the film, um, the images, you know, filled one sheet of slides mm-hmm. with, you know, his top, you know, 24 images and sent them off to the uh, photo editor at Patagonia. Nice. She called him the next day. He FedExed him to her. She yeah. calls the next day and he picks the phone and her greeting was who the hell are you <laughs> and so you know that was the beginning of you know a great relationship and, and you know still continues and so you know being in the pages of P- the Patagonia catalog were yeah. you know kind of the great you know launch pad at that point gotcha and then from there yeah it was the uh the the magazines and you know a lot of people are shooting magazines but you know getting the covers and you know that as is with any magazine so and then it's uh you know a combination of getting your name out there, being with the right people in the right places. And, you know, you take, you know, having, you know, a lot of talent, mm-hmm. um, you know, a close personal friendship with some of the best climbers on the planet, you know, yeah. the math works. Yes. <laughs> and so then you were helping then at this crucial point to kind of um, be the bridge between the client world and what he had been known for. Exactly. Basically. And, you know, with the projects getting bigger, um, it was really getting to the point where a producer was necessary because the projects up to that point, you know, you go out to the crag and climb with somebody, that, that's kind of all you need. I mean, yeah. you, you've got your gear. The athletes are, you know, in charge of, you know, making sure they have whatever gear they need. Mm-hmm. Um, you've got a couple of cliff bars and some water and, you know, <laughs> there's your production. Yeah. Um, but, you know, getting into... Craft services. Exactly. <laughs> getting into bigger stuff, you know, craft services and RVs and, you know, yeah. you know, actually, you know, getting to point where, okay, yeah, we probably should get a permit for this one. So, uh, yeah, so yeah. that, you know, got to be a point where a producer was necessary. So the, the way that I describe being a producer to people is, um, you know... I do everything else so that the photographer can show up and just start shooting photos. Yep. And uh, kind of the, the parallel that I've found is, you know, kind of the closest is, you know, an architect will draw out plans, you know, have the plans for this beautiful house, but they don't know how to build it. So they go right. find a general contractor and say, okay, make this happen. 
<laughs> and I was the general contractor. So, yeah. you know, kind of doing everything short of shooting the photos. Right. Yeah. And were you, um, you were like a creative director before yeah. that? Yeah. Because you had hired him. I had hired campaign. him. Um, yeah. The role of producer was not, it was something that I never really paid much attention to. I knew there were producers on shoots yeah. and I knew that, you know, you know, as a lot of, you know, art directors and creative directors do, it's like, oh, great, we're going out of town. Everything's taken care of. I just need to, you know, <laughs> you know, look at the photos at the end of the day yeah. or even the next day because this was still film. And uh, so I never really had given it much thought. But then, you know, kind of day one in the studio, it's like, OK, I see what's going on here. It's like and, you know, it, it took me a long time to really kind of learn all the skills. Yeah. How would you educate yourself on that? Just do you hit up on other the fly. producers or you just kind of figured it out on your own? Some of it I figured out on my own. Some of it, you know, there were only a handful of producers, you know, in, in the outdoor in industry. World, yeah. Exactly. So, it, um, you know, production early on was finding the people that you know that, you know, mm -hmm. not, I hit up a lot of people, but they weren't producers. You know, we need to, you know, we need to figure out how to, you know, get to this waterfall in Mexico and where do we stay and whatnot. And, mm -hmm. you know, how does, what does that production look like? So, you know, anybody else that had shot that up to that point, you know, wasn't doing it at, at a level that needed production. So I call kayakers, you know, I call, you know, I get on the phone with people that I know that have paddled that waterfall. And it's like, okay, where'd you stay? What'd you do? How did we get there? You know, all that. So that's oh, badass. So that was a lot of it just kind of, you know, and, and that still, that skill carried on through my entire career production that it's like, yeah, the, it's who's going to best know this information. And yeah. it's not, I mean, it's very rarely another producer. Yeah, I mean, it's basically like you're a fixer working with other fixers in exactly. order to fix the production to make sure that it comes out correct. Exactly. And like that kind of knowledge, I think, is always so cool to have. Like, oh, yeah, I know those guys. The, you need me to go up to uh, Jackson Hole and uh, blah, blah, blah and talk with kayakers there. Yeah. I mean, like, that's just such an interesting role to have. Right. Because a lot of the people that, you know, as the producer, as the fixer, a lot of the people that you're going to rely on mm -hmm. aren't necessarily on social media or some like no, clearinghouse yeah. website. It's like, you know, you need a bush pilot. You don't go to like bushpilots.com and like find somebody. And <laughs> well, it's not like, then. No, <laughs> it probably, yeah, it probably, yeah, it probably exists, exists now. now. Um, but you know, back in the time it's like, okay, I, you either need to know a bush pilot or it's like, Hey, I know like this crew just flew into this zone. I'm going to call, you know, somebody from that team and figure out who, you know, who flew them out there. So what was like uh, your first big project that you're like, all right, this is happening. <laughs> uh, the first like big commercial project that, uh, that we had uh, once I started was for um, Roadrunner Sports Magazine or mm -hmm. a catalog, Roadrunner Sports. And, you know, it's kind of like the go-to for, you know, the, the real, you know, enthusiastic runners. Yeah. Endurance. Um, endurance or... and trail track. I mean, they, sure. they serve as kind of like, all genres of, you know, all disciplines of running. Um, but they're kind of, you know, Roadrunner Sports is kind of like the, you know, the go-to. Mm -hmm. And, you know, they were putting out, you know, they put out, I think, like two catalogs a year. And they're always big and flashy. And so we got a project with them to shoot in Tahoe. And it was, you know, this was the first time that it's like, okay, we're, we're hiring talent. It's not like, up to that point, it had been, you know, the talent was kind of baked in because you're working with the athletes. And yeah. so, you know, we're working with, uh, you know, models. Yeah. Models and, <laughs> and, you know, active talent. That that's where, you know, you, you find to, you know, there, there's a niche of everything. You know, mm -hmm. there are a couple agencies in the country that are active models, you know, it, yeah. because that was one of the things, um, when I was first looking for a photographer back for that Bud Light shoot, 
I didn't want to have to teach talent, you know, how to shoulder a bike or coil a rope and do things like that. I want people to show up and know how to do that. Yeah. So that was a part of, big part of the ask was, okay, not only do I need a photographer that knows how to capture this, I want them to find talent who are actually athletes that look good. Yep. Yeah. And yeah, I mean, I, I can see that, like, where do you draw the line in saying we want fit models versus like an actual person mm -hmm. that knows what they're doing? Yeah, it, a lot of that comes down to just kind of educating the client because there's a little bit, there was a little back and forth on that. I remember when we did that first Bud Light shoot because, you know, these are, we're not necessarily the people you're used to seeing in, you know, Bud Light ads. Yeah. But you know what? They looked good they, because <laughs> they looked good because they knew what they were doing. Exactly. Yeah. And so you're saying that then you were able to, like, these, these fit model agencies, you're hiring people that do know what they're doing or they didn't? Yeah, they do know what they're okay, doing because cool. you can, uh, you know, similar to, you know, any typical agency, it's like, okay, I need a, you know, a Hispanic woman, you know, somewhere between 18 and 24 and oh mm -hmm. yeah, she needs to climb 511. Yeah. So and, and they have that. And so then they are potentially also like pro amateur, uh, uh, climbers and runners. Yeah, as quite well. a few of the people, um, in the places that I, the agency that I pulled from, they are they're, they're athletes that model on the side. Interesting. Yeah, that's cool. Uh, and so that should go off without a hitch. It did, nice. and it was that was kind of the like, first time. I it's know like, what I'm doing. Wait a second, we can do this. <laughs> we can do this a lot more. And uh, yeah, I mean, it it just kind of grew from there. And yeah. you know, projects all over the globe for all different kinds of brands, all different sizes. What and was it, your favorite? Or did you have a favorite? I mean, there there were so many that were so good. <laughs> um, there there was one probably the the most intense project that I ever produced, mm -hmm. um, and you can read about it in Corey's new book that just came out yesterday. Oh, nice! Uh, What's yeah, it called? Corey's got a new book called uh, Stories Behind the Images. Oh, cool! And uh, we so uh, a couple years into uh, my working in the studio, Corey was picked up by Nikon as a Nikon ambassador. Oh, cool! And um, you know, it started off you know, okay, here's camera, some gear, you yeah. know, shoot, you know, we'd, you know, like to license then, some of your images. Didn't that mark him going digital? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So that, well, he was d shooting digital, uh, um, up to that point, but I kind of a mix of digital and film, mm -hmm. um, up until that point, we were still like all winter sports were still on film just because the sensors and digital cameras just didn't know what to do with snow with, yet. Yeah, yeah, totally. And so, yeah, that was kind of the, like the decision of like, okay, or not the decision, but just kind of like the, the thrust of, okay, now we're, we're fully digital at this point. How did going digital change your role? Um, did it make it a lot easier or was it, like um, what differences did it affect you? There were different things to, to manage. I wouldn't say it was harder or easier. It was just different, you know, mm -hmm. rather than managing film or managing cards. Yeah. Um, you know, there was, you know, the extra steps of, you know, ingesting all the digital files versus, you know, sending film out to processed right. and, you know, cataloging slides and all that. So, um, it was different. Um, I would say the one, the biggest change was just the volume, yeah. you know, the number of images that we're shooting, um, you know, going from, you know, have, you know, I wouldn't say frugal because obviously, you know, you go on a project, you shoot as much as you need to, but it went yeah. from, you know, you know, couple dozen rolls to, you know, it was not uncommon that we were shooting 35 to 4,500 frames a day. <laughs> <laughs> so big days. Yeah. So, um, so, you know, then a lot of the responsibility became, you know, just wrangling all those images and all the data. And, you know, we had, you know, the, the giant Apple X rate at the time and yeah. just and turn around and clients saying, I need, I want to see what these look like right now. Exactly. <laughs> and, and that's, uh, that was, 
you know, one of the big changes to just the education because, um, you know, up until that point, clients and agencies were very comfortable with the mm -hmm. fact that it's like, well, we need to send the film out for processing. You know, you'll see it in 48 hours, whatever it may be. And now it's like, okay, uh, you know, we just wrapped the shoot. Can I have a drive? Yeah. It's like, sometimes that works. Sometimes it doesn't. Oh man. Um, it's gotta be, uh, there's probably some hiccups along the way. I'm sure just frustrating and like, Oh shit, we got to turn these over yeah. immediately now. Well, and that, that's one of the things that I learned early on too, is that as the producer, it's like, yeah, there were hiccups. You never show it. You, <laughs> you figure it out. Yeah. You, you just you act, figure it out seamlessly at casual. Yeah, absolutely. Everything's good. Yep. <laughs> um, the project I was, uh, was thinking of that's actually, uh, in the book, um, Shortly after um, their relationship with Nikon started, they were they had decided to launch their next um, like kind of high-end flagship camera, mm -hmm. and uh, Corey was one of a couple people choose chosen to help launch it. Mm -hmm. So this was the the D four at the time. Yeah, I think I remember this campaign. Yeah, it was uh, <laughs> it was intense, but it was so much fun. Um, over the course of fourteen days, we shot in Tlapaco in Mexico, um, Joshua Tree National Park, and Moab, Utah, mm -hmm. and. The thing to me that, you know, that really struck me is, I mean, the production was amazing. I mean, we worked with some just like amazing, you know, people in each of the locations. Um, we had a fixer in Mexico that was just, you know, a godsend. I mean, this guy Israel was just like, we couldn't have done it without him. And, you know, he did exactly what a fixer should do is, you know, he just made things happen while we were there. Things that, yeah. you know, we could have never done. Right. Um, but the, uh, working with the athletes was something else. And that's something that I never took for granted. Like, well, you know, we are, you know, asking these people to basically show us their best, mm -hmm. um, on camera, you know, be vulnerable, but like perform at a high level at the yeah. same time. Yeah. 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 And so on this project, we worked with Alex Honnold, um, Dane Jackson, who's just a phenomenal whitewater kayaker mm -hmm. and Rebecca Rush, who's just an amazing person on a mountain bike. Nice. Rebecca is a world champion in I think five different disciplines. Oh my God. And, uh, and it's just, I mean, it's, it's mind blowing. It really is. <laughs> um, and the thing that really impressed me and I've always kind of tried to approach or try to kind of dispel the idea of, you know, adventure sports athletes being, you know, like the Mountain Dew spokespeople, you know, just they're all amped up and everything. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, Taking you know, the adrenaline out of it. Exactly. <laughs> you know, I've always kind of tried to, you know, ever since I started working with Corey and you're really being exposed to these people and really seeing them at their peak, mm -hmm. you know, tried to kind of dispel that whole idea. Yeah. Um, but this project really kind of was like, you know, the pinnacle for me, you know, seeing these people, you know, these three, you know, amazing athletes mm -hmm. and just so mellow just like yeah like that's something i always think about i was uh i i feel like climbers specifically are the anti-celebrity right and um it's just so funny because with the recent boom of everything that's been happening the past few years with don wall and free solo you know like i was i was in denver last year for uh, the don wall um at the outdoor festival mm -hmm. Not festival. The, uh, uh, outdoor or outdoor retailer. Outdoor retailer. Yep. And so they had a, a the Don Wall showing, and I was texting Becca. I'm like, "Hey, I'm coming." You know, I somehow got tickets to this. I was with Ian from So Ill, and um, we go and we just sit down, and I'm like, "Oh man, I know a lot of people here." And like, um, God, what's his name? <laughs> he had just suffered an injury, and he was like reeling around on um, one of those like. Um, disabled uh little, scooters little knee scooter things yeah i i can't remember who it was very famous climber and it's just 
his, his name's not on my mind right now, <laughs> but we sat down and two seats over is Alex and, uh, his girlfriend, Sonny. Mm-hmm. And, uh, I'm like, cool, cool. You know, whatever. And then there's two girls next to us in between us. So we're like sandwiched. And you know, this girl just starts talking to Alex and like, Oh my God, blah, 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 blah. And like, he just gets up. And just stands for the rest of the film. Because <laughs> like he does he's like, I don't know what you're talking about. Yeah. Especially him. Right. That that's that's perfectly Alex right there. Yeah, and he's you know, uh, it's just knowing these people and like they basically askew celebrity, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that's the right word. Yeah. To where they just you know, like, I'm not famous. No. You know, I'm a climber. Right. Uh, by my nature I am not famous. And so it's been very interesting to watch how Tommy and Alex and all these climbers react to fame. Right. Well, and it's interesting because, you know, talk, especially those two guys, you know, they'll be the first to tell you, and I'm not doing this for fame. And, you know, there's that, there's that weird, um, uh, you know, kind of dichotomy in the, you know, the documenting of these events that it's like, you know, they, they're not doing it to have people watch them. Right. But they know full and well that's how they make a living. Yeah. You know, it's unless you've got the movies and the, you know, the photos in the, in the catalogs and the magazines, you know, that's, you know, how, how do you balance that? And, yeah. you know, I think at that point it comes down to the relationship between the athlete and the photographer mm-hmm. because you need to, there are certain lines that need to be respected. And I think that uh, Jimmy did a really good, Jimmy Chin did a really good mm-hmm. job of that. And, you know, Jimmy and Mikey and their, their talk in um, Free Solo you know, understanding that, yes, this needs to be documented because it's history, but then there's that, that weird thing in the back of your mind of like, this could go so poorly so quickly. Yeah. And like not wanting, you know, having to capture it, but not wanting to watch it. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, I mean, that's, that's a real, real consideration. You know, when, uh, when we were shooting with Alex in Joshua tree, mm-hmm. uh, we were, he was free soloing this like 60 foot feature. Mm-hmm. And just, uh, just this beautiful crack. And I think it, I think it goes like 512 plus. Mm-hmm. And it's a, uh, you know, it's, uh, it's one of those uh, routes that, are, you know, one of the, that is on most people's like tick list. Like I want to climb this someday. Yeah. Um, and, you know, then Alex just like is doing laps on it, soloing it. <laughs> and at one point, you know, he had, uh, the day that we were filming, I want to say he did it maybe I think three times. Yeah. And um, second time up, he is, you know, he's got just these beautiful finger locks in and one of his feet slips. Mm. And like in a moment, my brain goes from, this is really awesome to be watching this to suddenly I'm thinking, you know, Aravex and first aid and, you know, you know, all the things that, you know, the producer mind kicks in Yeah, and you know, his hands were so solid. He just continued. He found his foothold and we're back at, uh, you know, we're staying at a house in, um, just outside of Joshua tree and we're back that night, you know, reviewing footage and somebody, you know, like asks him about, it. he's like, what are you talking about? He's like, your foot slipped. And he's like, Oh, I didn't even notice. <laughs> it's just because it's like you, you know, you realize we're, we're so in tune to different parts of it than they're in tune mm-hmm. to, because, you know, you know, going back to the whole Mountain Dew thing, yeah. you know, they talk, you know, all of the athletes that I've talked to that, you know, working this level, it's like, if you're like to the point where your adrenaline's racing, you're all amped up, something's going to happen and it's not yeah. going to be good. You can't be that amped up. You've no, got to. you're not in a flow state. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, flow state is just, I, mean, I could just talk for hours about that too. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, you should explain it for people that don't know. So flow state is, um, 
it's a, a state of mind that um, I think is, is apparent in a lot of different groups of people, but it's mostly apparent within athletes and I think very specifically adventure athletes because mm-hmm. it's a state of mind where you basically shut off everything else and you're, I mean, to really simple, you know, simplify, you're going on intuition, yeah. but it's at a point you can only really achieve it when you've so fine tuned your intuition that, you know, I mean, you're reacting, your body's reacting faster than you really realize you are. Yeah. And, um, you know, there's a, uh, there's a great book, um, called, um, Rise of the Superman by a guy named Stephen Kotler. It's mm-hmm. a fantastic book about flow state. And then Stephen Kotler is, you know, I believe he's a neurologist mm-hmm. and he studies flow state. And uh, he's telling a story about uh, some time that he spent with the wingsuit team that mm-hmm. was in, I think it was Transformers 2, 3. Mm-hmm. Um, there's these guys wingsuiting through Chicago. And it talk, the, the way that they practiced it, um, these are all guys that are on, you know, the Red Bull Air Force. You know, they're just, you know, top of the top Mm -hmm. and um they found and they you know michael bay was certain that he wanted to actually film this wasn't going to be cgi he actually wanted wingsuiters and so um determined the area in the city that they're going to shoot and then these guys go out to switzerland and start flying through the alps and find features that most approximate the the layout of those buildings oh my god and do something like like hundreds of test runs through it (laughs) And they said that, uh, he said, you know, watching them and interviewing them and just seeing it all happen, it comes down to the, you know, the like flow state is basically a certain form of ESP mm-hmm. and ESP is possible, but it's a parlor trick. Yeah. And he talks about that, you know, because everything's happening so quickly, you've got wingsuiters and you've got a guy at the front. It's like watching a squadron of jets mm-hmm. and they're all responding to the guy in the front, but you don't have time to think about responding. You just respond. And he said that, you know, ultimately what flow state is in that sense, what it comes down to was, you know, you've got the guy in the front and he initiates a move, but the moment before he initiates the move, he's got to tell. Mm-hmm. And you could watch him a thousand times and never figure out what that tell is, but the guy behind him subconsciously is picking it up. <laughs> and, you know, he may, you know, initiate like a turn to the left, but right before he does that, he twitches his right ankle. Mm-hmm. The guy behind him is picking that up and knows exactly. And, and so they just have this beautiful flow. And I mean, this is such an interesting concept. It really is. And it's like, you know, and it just goes back into that whole idea. It's like, we, we're pot, we're, we have the potential to do so much more than we realize, mm-hmm. but we get in our own way. Yeah. And it's like, if you let the brain and you, you can't, and the danger is you don't want to equate it with going on autopilot because you can't just turn off. Right. You just, you, you're tuning out a lot. Right. Yeah. yeah, you're, yeah. It's just like a, um, a focus and, you know, you're not distracted, no distractions, Absolutely. like a meditative state. Almost. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, to where your body just responds from the amount of experience and, and the joy that you're probably feeling at that moment too. Right. You know I mean? It's such a, I need to read that book. It sounds super interesting. It, it's, it's a really good read. It's really interesting. <laughs> and it's, you know, that whole idea of flow is, you know, you ever have those times where it's like something is of interest to you and then you start like seeing it in like all these different places or, you know, sure, yeah. there's podcasts frequency about frequency phenomena. Exactly. Whatever, yeah. Um, you know, that's been happening lately where it's like, you know, kind of the, the, the spinoff of flow state is the effect of, or not a spinoff, but like something that, that affects us just as much is sound. Mm. You know, and, you know, there's a lot within flow state that is related to the sound or, or sound or the absence of sound. Mm-hmm. And so there's been a lot of uh, talk lately about, silence and what silence really is and silent like true silence isn't actually the absence of sound it's the the absence of manufactured sound interesting and if you go to you there's 
a couple spaces left on. I think there's like 12 spots left on the planet where mm-hmm. you can go and experience true like silence. Yeah, yeah. Interesting. And there's something that happens when you go there, when you're not subject to manufactured sound. Mm-hmm. Um, you enter a lot of audiologists and audio scientists call it um, the heartbeat of the earth. When the only thing that you're hearing is the wind and the trees and the cicadas and the birds and the rush of water, something happens to you mentally. And it's not something that necessarily something different happens to you. It's you go back to the way that you were you should be. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. That's interesting. Um, yeah. I mean, even just hearing you describe it, I'm placing myself in, you know, trying to remember the last time I was in some place like that. Uh, I, I feel like I was in Iceland and that it was very evident there, mm-hmm. you know, because it's just this crazy landscape that you've never, ever seen anywhere else. And you're surrounded by massive waterfalls and, you know, but it's also like you go to um, the Black Rock Beach in Vic and it's just like very quiet. Mm-hmm. And you just start to feel like uh, this sort of, I don't know, not to get too, <laughs> not to get too and spiritual, but like, yeah, you do start to feel like a, a greater connectivity with things. Absolutely. Um I was like, it's uh, something I think people need to uh, get the immersed in as frequently as they can. Absolutely. I mean, because we, the further we get away from that, the further we get away from, you know, full potential because yeah. potential doesn't come about digitally. No, but then, you know, there's also the thing to be said for, you know, living in a place like New York and, and, and there's a different kind of heartbeat there. Totally. I was, I was just talking to a friend yesterday about, sound in New York, there are certain, I've got a playlist on, on Spotify that's city music. Yeah. And because there are certain songs that just in headphones, you know, through headphones, walking through a city like Manhattan. Yeah. It just, it makes it, it just, yeah. it's like the cherry. Like what? Um, the entire album introducing by DJ shadow. Oh yeah. That yeah, album yeah. was meant to be listened oh, God, to so in, in a city. Um, another one I just added, and it's funny because that, that list is so divergent. It's got, DJ Shadow, it's got uh-huh. Coltrane, um, uh-huh. Ape Shit by the Carters is a fantastic song to listen to in headphones walking between buildings. And it's, uh, you know, it, it's just, the, um, you know, there's, a, I've got Blossom Deary on there, this old, like, you know, blues and soul singer. And uh, they're just certain songs that, like, it well, puts like you in a place. It's like a soundtrack for your, exi- like, your present life. Absolutely. I, I feel like... Um, I always, I, I've always thought that was such a weird thing when you're traveling and you're doing something new mm-hmm. and you're like, I want to listen to some music. And then all of a sudden it's like, this isn't, my life is a movie. Right. <laughs> well, that's one of my favorite games to play is, uh, you know, what are, what are the opening closing credit songs, you know, to your, the movie of your life? You know, what plays is the, the credits roll? Oh shit. What's yeah. yours? Um, hands down a forest by the cure. Okay. Yeah. That's your opening song. That's, that's the closing. Oh, okay. Um, opening is, um, High Plains Drifter by the uh, Beastie Boys. Really? Yeah. I don't know that one right off the top of my head. It's go, it's so good. It's just classic <laughs> Beasties. I've never even thought about that. I'm like thinking like Ride of the Valkyries or something. <laughs> dun, 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 dun. I, that seems fitting for you. I like it. Yeah. <laughs> well, I'm just thinking like, I don't know. I, I like Stanley Kubrick and how he, I was thinking of the song in 2001, A Space Odyssey towards the end mm-hmm. when, you know, he goes through that rapid change of birth and life yep. and death and all that kind of stuff. Um, man, we're, that's quite the tangent. <laughs> <laughs> Those are the best conversations though. Yeah, totally. How we get here? I don't care. Let's keep going. <laughs> so that, that Nikon shoot though was definitely, you would say kind of, you know, the, the most memorable. It was the most memorable for a couple of reasons. Cause it was, it was all over the place. Like you had 
different shooting locations, different types of um, people. And it was also, wasn't it his first motion piece? No, we had done some motion before that. That was okay. the first one kind of like, kind of using motion as a kind of a pitch vehicle like that because they, mm -hmm. we were capturing the stills and the motion with that camera. Um, the kind of the motion you know, element came before that, um, still with the Nike, you know, once we had started with the Nikon, mm -hmm. uh, but you know, they sent us a camera one day, it was their D90 and it was the first DSLR mm -hmm. to capture video. And basically it arrived in the mail one day, like do something with this. So, you know, okay, yeah. So, uh, you know, the, uh, the, you know, obviously kind of the, the low hanging fruit was Tommy was in the Valley at the time. So, you know, yeah. let's go shoot some stuff. And, uh, it's kind of funny a lot of, he was, you know, working on this yet unnamed project of, mm -hmm. you know, something that he didn't know would go. And a lot of that footage ended up in Donwall because that's, that's exactly amazing. what he's working on at the time. That's crazy. So yeah, it was just kind of this, uh, you know, this kind of funny, like, you know, coming together of things. So it's, uh, yeah, we'd been, um, shooting some motion, um, up to that point, but more just kind of like, you know, the, the, the sensors weren't quite there yet. Yeah. Um, but you know, still, still really excited about it. And so the D4 was kind of like, okay, now it's, it's game time. It, it's game time. <laughs> so, you know, there were Did a lot of... Did you go to that project that when he was working on that? Yeah. In the Valley? Yeah. Okay, cool. You know, that's yeah. so funny because I was living in Estes in 2009 mm -hmm. and hanging out with his wife, Becca, or and that, they were just boyfriend, girlfriend yeah, at so. that I point. Yeah, I think they were married, yeah. And uh, I'm like, where is he? You know, where's Tommy? And, and, and like, Tommy was still a pretty big name at that time, but you know, again the whole anti-celebrity of climbing. It's just like, right. What are, you know, these are just dudes right? hanging out. They're just like you and I, uh, but, and like he was working on the Dawn wall and then I left, went to California for a while and came back and, uh, and then hung out with them, I think one or two nights and just had dinner. It was yeah. pretty cool. Yeah. And just that, that, that's what I love about that community too. It just within, you know, the outdoor community, it's like, you know, there've been so many times exactly like that, you know, having beers at a campfire or you know, yeah. just sitting at somebody's house and it's like, you know, you're looking around, it's like, oh shit, this person is like <laughs> the top of their game, but you would never know it. But you know, they're, they're not the type of athlete that, you know, you know, is parading it. No. Yeah, exactly. They're proud of it, but they're not parading it. Well, and it's because the nature of the sport is, um, I, I might have already said this already once this podcast, but it's just like, there's an inherent humility mm -hmm. to it, you know? And it's just, Again, it's not about it, it. We're at a weird time with all the you know the free solo and the movies that have come out. But at the core of it, every if you climb, you know what it's about, right? And you can connect with any other mm -hmm. climber. Well, and the, to the point of the humility too, I something that I've always appreciated. You know, going beyond just you know the the climbing and the mountain biking. You know, you get a little further to the fringe. You know, X Games and that sort of thing, and you know, yeah. skate competitions. Um, I love going to them because you know this is you'll see it today, but this has always been part of the sport. Is you know, yeah, there's the, the rules and yeah, there's ultimately, you know, somebody that's standing at this top step of a podium, mm -hmm. but occasionally you've got somebody that's trying to land this trick that they've been working on forever. And, you know, their time has passed. Um, you know, they're, the judges have stopped watching, mm -hmm. but the, the crowd and all of the, uh, the competitors are like, do it again, yeah, do it again. Cool. Yeah. And it's just, that's, it's such a stark contrast to the mainstream sports. Exactly. And, and it's too bad, too, because I think that encouragement, that's what sport really is or what really, it totally. really should be. And you don't see it in the mainstream. No. It, and it is much more of a glorification of the individual and a celebrity kind of thing. Yep. Um, and it's douchier in a lot of respects. <laughs> no, it absolutely is. Um, yeah, it's still entertaining, obviously, but it's, um, you know, it's just, 
it, when you can watch someone climb or, you know, do something else and then immediately go do it yourself mm -hmm. in an individual nature, I think that's the power of these kind of sports. Yep. And then the team sports, you know, you have to have nine other people to play a game of basketball. Right. Um, and so I think that that's, I think that's what really reached out to me when I was, you know, I was never good at team sports. Mm -hmm. And then I started climbing and like going at my own pace. Yeah. And I'm like, oh, this is badass. Yeah. Before that, biking, right. obviously, too. Mm -hmm. um, and it's, um, yeah, I mean, it's just, it's just very unique. Well, and I like, too, the fact that you can, you know, you could be a really enthusiastic baseball player, mm -hmm. but you're never going to play in Wrigley Field. Yeah. But, you know, as a climber, you, go. you can go, a way to put you it. know, climb the nose. You know, yeah. if you're, you know, you can go ride Alpe d'Huez, the same route that, you know, they ride in the tour. You know, yeah. you can, you can be in the same arena. Definitely. And a lot of times you're in the same arena with a pro right next to you. Yeah. And they're just doing the same thing you are. They're just having a good day out there. Yeah, that's awesome. That's and, a great way to yeah. put it. I think that is kind of like the key differentiator between uh, team sports, mainstream sports and you know, alternative sports yeah. or whatever we yeah. call outdoor well, sports. And it's so great too, because there've been so many occasions that I've been out in, you know, one of these outdoor arenas and have watched a pro, you know, cheer on, you know, a total amateur, just yeah. like somebody that's, Oh a, yeah. Yeah. And that again, going back to that's what sport is. That's what it should be. Right. Yeah. yeah. No, that is unique too, because it's like, you know, that that person's at their own, uh, part of their journey trying to achieve something. Mm. You know, and I've seen so many climbing competitions where, you know, like Sharma will be like, yeah, go yeah. get that 510 right. or, you know, whatever. And that, that's so motivating. And they're, they're, they're enthusiastic and they're authentic about it as well. Absolutely. Meanwhile, it's like you're not going to have uh, Deion Sanders watching, uh, you know, some guys playing in the park being like, yeah, tackle that guy. Yeah, no, he's, gonna, <laughs> he's probably, probably going to trash talk him. <laughs> yeah, no, definitely. <laughs> um, man, I have such a funny, well, not funny, but interesting story is... Uh, to show how nice of a guy Tommy Caldwell is, when I was coming back from California, I had to get my belongings in Estes. So I um, flew out. I had my our, Becca drove me to the airport, and then I came back a month later. So uh, Tommy had come back through the airport, and he's like, I'll just leave my car there for you. I'm like, okay, all right, sweet. Yeah. So I get to the airport, um, or land in, land in Denver, and it had just been snowing its balls off get into his shitty little Honda Civic. And, uh, and he's like, it'll be fine. You'll be good. And so I'm driving up to Estes, you know, through Boulder. And then have you ever done that drive? The, yeah. The, in the Canyon, like past lions, that whole area. Yeah. yeah. So like you go, you know, past Boulder, you get out of Boulder and then you start heading up the mountain mm -hmm. and it's coming down crazy. And you're wanting a lot more than a Honda Civic. At that yeah. Point. yeah. I'm, I'm like, this is, I'm just creeping along, probably doing 10 <laughs> miles per hour on average. Um, and I'm just like, you know, wired like this, you know, just making sure everything's cool. You know, you see people stopped on the side of the road, just wait. I don't know what they're waiting for because it's snowing buckets. Uh, you know, you're, you're creeping around the corners and that road's so crazy even yeah. when it's not snowing. Exactly. That, that you're putting your life in your hands in the best conditions. Yeah. yeah. And there's, um, what I think I was going, I started to get a little more confident. I don't know why. And I'm start, I get up to like maybe 20 miles per hour. I'm like, oh, this is fine. I got this down by now. Maybe like an hour into driving. And there's this subtle turn uh, and, a, and a rise. And I just start, you know, I, I start to make the turn. I'm probably going like 20 miles per hour at this point. And then lose all traction. Oh, shit. And I do um, a complete 360 and then another 180. And 
my back is just going, there's no guardrail. My back is just going straight towards it. And I'm like, like, you know, working the brakes, not, not slamming on them, but like pumping the brakes and just stop. And I'm like, Oh shit. (laughs) And that, you know, in my mind, it feels like in the movies where it's like, yeah, you're like like teetering, teetering off the edge of it. And this is how I die. (laughs) And Tommy Caldwell's civic. And uh, I just like stop, like take a couple deep breaths. I don't move at all because I feel like I'm about to fall off the back. And I slowly just push forward, turn to the left, and then head back up the mountain. So I get up there and they're all hanging out and uh, having a dinner party or something. And I'm like, dude, I almost died in your car. <laughs> <laughs> and he's like, oh, where at? I'm like, oh, this, this, I, you know, I knew the features then. Like, he's like, oh, yeah. Um, something like, like four people have died this year right there, <laughs> right there. I'm like, I was, I was just, that was, that's how I met Tommy Caldwell. <laughs> you almost became a statistic. I drove his car, almost died. And then, uh, you know, we had some dinner and wine. <laughs> a lot of wine. Well, there probably, you know, a lot of like, you got a lot of courage being in his car though. It's like, you knew like somehow it was just going to work. I, I didn't have any courage. I'm like, I'm in this shitty ass little civic. I'm going to fly off the side of this mountain and that's going to be my story. Then, uh, you know, my, yeah. my end song is going to start playing. <laughs> <laughs> And it's not Flight of the Valkyrie at that point. No, that's a little anticlimactic. Bring out the clowns or something. The sad trombone. (laughs) (laughs) So yeah, that's uh, that's that's my brush with life and death. Life, death, fame, all in one, just like yeah, one in one evening. Awesome. (laughs) And then I had, I think I had to stick around in Estes for an extra two days uh, before driving back because you know we're just caught in a snowstorm. Yeah, it was nuts. I loved living out there though. I mean, it was a different pace of life. You, you know, you do get that altitude. You start yeah. feeling good. You don't, yeah. you don't lose your breath running up the stairs. Well, yeah, <laughs> Estes is like such a storybook town too. You know, you've got that little creek running through town and, oh, you know, just God. like the views are amazing. and It's gorgeous. Yeah. And there's like two bars you go to, the Rock Inn mm-hmm. and uh, another one that's actually kind of douchey and more sports bar <laughs> Yeah, I'd spent a bunch of time in uh, Estes uh, years ago. My cousin was a park ranger at Rocky Mountain National Park and uh, they were... He and his wife were living in a house that had been in the park, in the park, on wow. the park grounds. Yeah. Um, it was a house that had been grandfathered in. It was in her family for generations. So they actually lived on the park grounds and um, you look out their kitchen window and it's the mummy range right there. And it was just, mm. I mean, it was beautiful. Oh my gosh. Yeah. And it's a, you know, it was one of those, yeah, again, it was storybook, you know, it's this log cabin, you know, hundred years old mm-hmm. on the top of a ridge line, and you know, you're surrounded by all this and it's just kind of like, okay, this, this is the life I want. Yeah, it's 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 such a different way of life too compared to urban living. Mm-hmm. And I, I moved out there at the time to get away. We were recording an album, the band that I was in at the time, and it was just taking forever. I think it was like a year, and we were doing an EP. Yeah, and I'm like, I can't do this anymore. Yeah. I'm tired of doing this. I'm just gonna go to the mountains. My buddy was good friends with Becca, and I knew her from uh, going to university at Maryville. And he's like, Come on out, just stay with me. I'll have a great time. You know, just the three of us kicking it. Yeah. So I did. And it's just, you know, you go to bed earlier, you wake up a little bit earlier, you know, you can just get outdoors. Well, yeah, you climbing. just, you, you sink back into those, you know, those natural, you know, just the natural pace of life and, you know, the yeah. circadian rhythms and, you know, everything that, mm-hmm. again, you know, going back to, you know, not to, you know, dig on digital or metropolitan life because, you know, they both, you know, th- that all has its merits, but there's a lot to be said that we're, we're kind of really messing with ourselves by yeah. 
not spending enough time outdoors. And totally, you know, there's there's a lot to be said for you know you waking up with the sun and you know just going out there and getting fresh air and you know something that I try to do and it's you know again you know at the risk of you know sounding too spiritual about it but you know the sun that I, I truly believe in you know I you know at least once a week we'll you know walk around in my backyard barefoot you know because yeah. there's there's a grounding that happens and it's a uh, you know it sounds woo woo but it's like and it's been proven it's like you know there's there's the, the magnetic pull of the earth and it resets us yeah and I think it's interesting to find that um some of the the things that we have thought are woo woo uh, are now having a scientific backing to them. Absolutely, and so much. And then I think that 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 kind of throws anyone who, you know, is a staunch uh, realist or atheist or anything, kind of like, oh, there is a weird rhythm to things. Right. There is a, there is something behind life that isn't necessarily documentable. Mm-hmm. Um, well, yeah, and there's all you know, you look at the, you know. The, I'm, I love quantum physics and astrophysics mm-hmm. physics. And, you know, I, I would love to have at some point, you know, worked in that arena. Um, but, you know, I'll still, I'm a very much of a, a pedestrian physicist, you know, just oh, reading dude. what I can. Have you read Neil deGrasse's, um, what's that one? Astrophysics for people in a hurry. Yeah. It's not for people in a hurry. No, it's not because even, <laughs> because even at the most pedestrian level, um, it, it's still difficult. Um, there's yeah. a, uh, I was reading that. I'm like, okay, this would be a nice little read, yeah. like uh, Malcolm Gladwell astrophysics. And I'm reading this. I'm like, Holy shit, this gets deep quick. Well, he's the <laughs> a person though. I don't know that he can really speak at a pedestrian level. Even like his yeah. stuff distilled down is still way over. Our Infamously. Head. So. Um, there's a guy <laughs> named Carlo Rovelli. He's an Italian astrophysicist who, uh, if I remember correctly, I think he was with Brian green on the, the, uh, um, string string theory, like uh-huh. the, the the first writing, the string theory. Um, but he does his books and his interviews do a really good job of giving a very digestible explanation yeah. of Explain astrophysics. Explain it to me like I'm a fifth grader. Exactly. Kind of well, yeah. what he does is he's a he's a poet. He yeah. he gives it to you in a very romantic lexicon, and it's it's stuff. It's you feel it. I mean, you truly do. I mean, that's the best way to describe it. It's just the way that he talks about it. It's like it. Rather than like striking you at a like a an academic level, it hits mm-hmm. you at a romantic level. Yeah, I started reading Sapiens. Uh, mm-hmm. Have you read that? No, I haven't yet. And it's kind of similar in okay. that respect. You know, it's like it's the ability to write in that level with that level of knowledge is just a complete gift. Yeah, because I think most of the time, what happens is people are so entrenched in whatever their field of focus is that they kind of lose the connection with how to communicate to others what they're actually doing. Absolutely. And so I, you know, love him or hate him, Malcolm Gladwell and these mm-hmm. other writers who have had the uh, unique gift of being able to synthesize so much information into an understandable format for a large group of people, I think is kind of the future. Right. <laughs> Absolutely. Mean, it, it really is because mm-hmm. if you can't communicate the benefit of what it is that you're studying to a fifth grader, then it's om- it's almost like you don't know it well enough to begin with because right. you can't get outside of yourself. Absolutely. And I think that's, that to me is true intelligence. Intelligence yeah. goes far beyond just knowing something. It's exactly like you said, it's being able to pass it on. Yes. Yeah. yeah. And, um, I, I, I got to check out both of those books because, uh, that's, uh, I'll link to them too in the mm-hmm. notes for yeah. sure. The, uh, you know, what we were saying about just the, you know, these scientific discoveries, you know, I have to laugh, you know, there's as interested and as, and, you know, as much as I will try to absorb everything I can find about, you know, string theory and, mm-hmm. you know, all these new things come out and every Buddhist on the planet goes, we knew that. Yeah. Yeah. 
the, no, the, I know. None of this is new. And, you know, the same goes for, you know, medicine and a lot of, you know, tribal tradition and, mm-hmm. you know, indigenous people's, you know, treatments of what have you. And, right. you know, there, there's a reason that, you know, every major pharma company on the planet has an interest in the Amazon. And mm-hmm. despite the fact that it's burning down right now, it's like, you know, there's... Yeah they don't want to admit it or they're, you know, they're afraid of the stigma of admitting it, but you know, all the answers exist on the planet, Yeah. but we're very quickly depleting all of them. And we're, you know, not only the resources, but the know-how too, you know, there are the number of indigenous cultures that are being wiped out that have these answers. Yes. Yeah. No, without a doubt. Did you see the article that I posted though, about um, how the, the Amazon fires in this year were being politicized? No, I didn't see that. So I found this article, and it, um, and I didn't fact, I didn't check all the sources, mm-hmm. but it was published in like Washington Post or some mm-hmm. fairly reputable source, and it was saying that that because of Bolsonaro, uh, the Brazilian president, mm-hmm. um, that uh, people uh, climate activists were politicizing this year's fires, saying that it was the farmers that were setting them, but that this was, in all honesty, no different than any previous years sure. and that somehow like because of the um you know the tipping point of information like leonardo dicaprio mm-hmm. tweeted about it and they were tweeting a picture that was from years ago okay and that it wasn't even indicative of what the fires actually were okay. and so like you know that's a whole nother discussion <laughs> sure. to have because it's like i think my personal view is that um you should err on the side of conservation uh you know we only have this one world, why would you, why would you want to hurt it? Right. You know, and, and even if things are, I, I just think that you should, if you're going to make a mistake, make it in the mistake in the favor of the world. Absolutely. Um, but I also understand where people are coming from, where it's, um, they're legislating things to death and not allowing people to make a living in some regards. Mm-hmm. And so it's a complicated, um, especially that I think was interesting because I have a friend who's down in Brazil and he's like, it's no different. Like down in Brazil, we're not caring, you know? Yeah. And so I, I don't know. It's a tricky point of view. It It is tricky. Anytime you bring politics or commerce into it, because you know, even if it, if it is the same as it's ever been uh and it's just been politicized, it's still an issue. And it's like, if this is what it took to, you know, kind of get it into the common consciousness, fine. Yeah. You know, and, uh, you know, it, as far as, you know, allowing, you know, over legislating and allowing things to happen, mm-hmm. you know, there's that we're getting to a point where it's like the short sightedness of a lot of these decisions mm-hmm. is affecting everybody. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, the short sightedness is something that, you know, I think is, is becoming a great issue, whether it be, you know, justice, economics, uh, environmentalism. It's just, you know, well, what's going to be good right now? Mm-hmm. And we're in the situation we are right now is because we've spent, you know, a hundred years thinking, well, what about right now? Yeah. yeah. Well, and also there's been greater awareness and education the past hundred years uh, prior. Right. So, you know, I think that the, the mm-hmm. humanity is getting smarter in some ways right. than ever before. Right. So, yeah, I think it's a very... Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know, like, you know, especially with everything that happened this past week with Greta Thunberg yes. or Thunberg mm-hmm. um, and people, you know, on the left and the right and back, you know, firing back and forth. And, and, you know, I think it, it's complicated, you know, it's like, it's weird that the, the 16 year old is 
screaming at the people, but it's also she has truth behind what she's saying as well. Right. But then it's like, should a child be saying this kind of stuff or like this alarmed and this panicked? And, mm-hmm. you know, and I, I think that it just takes nuance and understanding to address these issues. And unfortunately, most of society is lacking in both of those. Absolutely. Well, <laughs> and I think, too, you know, whether, you know, the, the child versus adult thing and just kind of who who has the right to say what to who and how it's, mm. you know, I think a lot of that comes down to, you know, and so many of the other issues, it comes down to convention. That's something that my, my wife and I have been working on the mm-hmm. last couple of years is, you know, how is convention harming us? Mm-hmm. And, you know, there are certain things, yeah, there's, there's the greater good. Um, but then in great contrast to the greater good is how, how many things do we do or allow to happen? Because that's how we've been taught. That's how it's supposed to be. Sure. And I think that's one of them. It's like, you know, you know, if a 16 year old has the voice and the maturity to, you know, stand up. I think she should be given full reign to, you know, she needs to raise her voice to get attention. Let her raise her voice. Yeah. And, but it's that convention of, well, you know, children should be respectful. And it's like, you know, the people that she's speaking to haven't shown any respect. Yeah. I mean, I guess the, the opposite side would be saying that they're using her because she is a child Mm -hmm. and, you know, and, and I, I understand that too, to a certain extent. Um, I don't know. It's it's not an easy issue yeah. to tackle. No, and I and I think something that gets gets spun into or you know entangled in all this is cynicism and the rising cynicism mm-hmm. and just that immediate thought of well she's being used or it's not sincere and it's like why has that become you know the the default response to so many things now it's like you know you know and you see it on social media you see yeah. it in just you know interviews it's the immediate response of a well, they didn't mean it or they, they weren't sincere or just, you know, cynicism about, um, an issue. And mm-hmm. it's like, th- that's not productive. That's not doing anything. And it just, it's You're growing. Right, yeah. There is an over political, <laughs> I can't even say it. You know, you know the word I'm trying to say of everything. Yeah. Uh, and expect, you know, social media just magnifies that 10 times. Absolutely. That's awful. Right. And it's like, when are people going to realize that social media platforms aren't the greatest place to have these kind of conversations. Exactly. Because you, <laughs> there's zero nuance allowed in exactly. social media. Yeah. No nuance whatsoever. And, and by its format, you just can't have uh, in-depth conversation about these things that require nuance. Absolutely. And so it just turns in this weird tribalism of people yelling louder than the other person right. with the more followers. So. Exactly. Yeah. There's something about nuance and, you know, I, I think any conversation or, you know, this is going to sound somewhat contradictory as I'm saying this on a podcast and nobody can see my eyes, but it's like, you know, to look a person in the eyes and have a conversation, I think sure. it, it really is going to make you take stock of what you're saying. Definitely. And not to censor yourself, but to understand the consequences of what you're saying. Yeah. And I think that, um, you know, I, I, there's been so many instances now of like, you know, getting different types of people in the room together to talk, to have a real conversation, to recognize, you know, and it's been done even in advertisements, <laughs> but to realize the similarities that we do all have with each other. Absolutely. Even though we don't think we do. Right. So, you know, one day at a time, I guess, step by step. Yeah. Day by day. Just keep, <laughs> keep just keep trying to be the best me for everybody else and Ex- see what happens. Live by example. You Absolutely. Know? Um, so back to, back to what you were doing, uh, you, uh, when did you decide to make your exit from that world? And, so, and how come? So about, I want to say it was like six or seven years in, um, family moved back to St. Louis. Um, you know, the reason most people move back is family. Mm-hmm. I had two daughters at the time. Um, you know, they were both getting to the age that, you know, 
it would be it would be good to have family around. My wife and I both grew up in families having aunts and uncles and grandparents, great grandparents, and all that. And you know, we, we had friends. We had a lot of great friends in Tahoe, but um, nobody was you know really thinking about having families yet. Sure. And um, you know, had the the great benefit. And you know, Corey's parents were great adoptive grandparents for the girls while we're out there. But uh, you know, really wanted to be around family, so we moved back. And for about two years. Uh, about a year and a half, I continued working with Corey remotely because, mm-hmm. I mean, the realization came very early on. It didn't matter where I was sitting because, he, you know, we had projects going all over the globe and there was yeah. an airport here. And, you know, with the Internet, I could still keep doing what I was doing. Sure. So um, that distance didn't really um, create any issue. And then uh, about a year and a half into that, you know, I for a long time have harbored the idea of going to grad school. I want to get my MFA. Mm-hmm. And... Um, had been doing a lot of work in the studio at home, put together a portfolio and was accepted into the um, MFA printmaking program at Webster. Nice. And so, you know, called Corey up one day. I'm like, it's time. And he knew my, my desire to, you know, get back into the arts and he was absolutely understanding of it. And um, my thought was, you know, I was going to, you know, stop working with Corey and then I would go to school and then I would do some, you know, I'd do pick up the occasional gig on the side, you know, just to, to stay in production. And then, you know, kind of two things happened very simultaneously. One, um, I had this realization, how am I going to pay for grad school if I'm not working? (laughs) My my wife's a teacher and she's absolutely fantastic at what she does, but teacher salaries, you know, it's hard to, you know, support a family of four on a teacher salary. And so I thought, okay, well maybe I need to pick up more, side gigs than I realized. So I started putting the feelers out talking to some photographers that I knew in town Mm -hmm. and got busy really fast Yeah, and came to about two weeks before classes were supposed to start. And I, my, I was booked out six months. It's like, okay, well maybe this is a sign. (laughs) So, um, put grad school on hold and just, that's when I started took take. And that was just me, you know, that was my production gig. And was doing still in motion production for photographers all over the place. And it was amazing. That's cool. Yeah. Um, and was there kind of like also, you know, I think that, sorry, I have this thought running through my head. I'm just trying to figure out the best way to uh, verbalize it. Just kind of um, wanting to do some, your own thing, mm-hmm. not in a selfish way, but just in kind of like a, uh, uh, like you return back to art, you start up your own company. Mm-hmm. It was kind of like maybe try to get away from Corey's his shadow or whatever. Yeah, definitely. And I think that, I think that was definitely part of it because you know I, you to know, just be I, very comfortable just like doing these crazy gigs. Sure, and, <laughs> and I get, got very comfortable with the fact that you know putting his name on a permit application made things yeah. real easy. And sure. uh, you know it was it was fun, but I, I I fully respected the fact that it was it was his show. Yeah. Um, and I wanted to you know maybe have a little more creative control. Exactly. And you know that's. You know, when I started producing on my own, you know, that's kind of, I would bill myself as, you know, producer that had this art and agency background. Mm-hmm. So it's like, you know, I always ask people bring me in as soon as possible. So mm-hmm. um, not only was I producing, I was helping with creative at times. I ended up directing a couple spots, you know, and it was just things that, okay, I'm, I'm really getting my hands in a lot deeper on this now. Sure. And I think that that's also just kind of a lifelong challenge too and saying, working for someone else paying you versus doing what it is that you want to do. Exactly. You know, I mean, I, you probably know that more than anyone right. at this and, point. And it was nice too, because it, you know, not that this was ever an issue um, working with Corey um, because we had very, you know, very similar outlook of the type of projects that mm-hmm. we wanted and the type of projects that we wanted to avoid. 
Um, but now once I was on my own, I had a complete ability to say no to projects. Yeah. So, and I had my, you know, I held very strong to my list of no's, you know, these are clients that I will not do work for. Sure. And, and you know, I turned down so many Monsanto projects <laughs> and I just, that was an absolute no for me. I will not, yeah. I, I won't take their money. So yeah. Well, more power to you. <laughs> I, I did one project for Monsanto back in the day, but I felt like it was, uh, not evil. <laughs> it was like an internal video for a new IT development. And I'm That's like, enough. I'm like, yeah, but at the same time, I'm like, okay, my company's called anti-agency <laughs> and I'm working for fucking Monsanto. And my idea was to take the money and to make some sort of documentary piece. It didn't happen. Mm-hmm. You know, there's long gaps between your idealistic output and sure. Also, having to feed yourself. Exactly. <laughs> You've got that chunk of money. It's like, I could do this, but I could keep the lights on, too. So. Right. But, yeah, I mean, uh, you know, whatever. You guys can hate me for that yeah. one. And, um, and that's why I, I made the the hard decision just, it was no from the bat. Because I yeah. I didn't ever want to, because I had the same idea, too. You know, there's there's a lot of, I should say there's a lot. There's a handful of people out there that do exactly what you talk about, where, mm-hmm. you know, they'll take the projects and then... Um, turn the money around and put it into basically something completely counter to what yes. they just did. And, you know, I admire that, but I don't know if I could do it. So I just, I never wanted the money in the first place. Yeah, just no, never have you. to make that decision. So Yeah, I was, I, I, I was always thinking of Rage Against the Machine whenever I did that job. I'm like, oh yeah, they, uh, you know, they let Sony fund their uh, subversion. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> yeah, and there's a, you know, there, there's certainly... Um, different levels of it. You know, I, I truly felt that, you know, I could not be part of the, you know, Monsanto machine. I didn't want yeah. anything to do with that. But then, you know, there's also, you know, what some people would label selling out. It's like, okay, if you want to pay us a lot of money to, you know, score this car commercial, okay. Yeah, why not? Yeah. And, you know, nowadays with how the music industry has uh, unfolded that nobody cares about that anymore. Exactly. They're like, uh, no, that's how you make money. Yeah. Because the record labels suck balls. Right. <laughs> I just listened to a podcast the other day. Um, they were talking about um, the Amen Break, which is the, the most used, the most sampled bit of music in all of sampling. What's the Amen Break? It's, uh, it's a... In hip hop? In all music. So the, it's, uh, it's this like six second drum break that was first recorded by, I think the band was called the Winstons. Oh, I know it. Yeah. yeah. And yep. it's been used in over 2,000 songs now. Yes. Everything from like, um, I mean, I think they say like Lionel Richie to, mm-hmm. you know, Beast. I mean, everybody's used this thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but the guy that wrote it never saw a dime. And uh, some uh, intellectual property lawyer was saying that he should have collected somewhere in the neighborhood of $30 million. Oh, my God. Uh, but they, uh, you know, some... It's deep, a documentary, right? Or is it just like a th- short? This was a, a podcast I was listening to. Is uh, Okay, I 20, know that there's a video about it as well. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, um, yeah that's that's, un- that's unfortunate. <laughs> <laughs> but you're right. You're going back to what you're saying as far as, you know, kind of the, the, you know, widespread use of music. I mean, you've got, you know, Massive Attack. You know, they yeah. are, you know, very, you know, at the, at the, their foundation, very subversive and, you uh-huh. know, they're also hiding Banksy, but that's a different story. Right. Um, but, you know, they... <laughs> I've seen that theory. I, I, there's a lot to it. I think there's something... Uh, there's a uh, a little book that my daughter gave me one year for my birthday, and it's uh-huh. all about Banksy. But there's a couple pages in where it talks about Massive Attack, and they all grew up together in Bristol. Yep. And, and they know Banksy. Exactly. Right. But then there's also this kind of weird thing that whenever um, Massive Attack will do a show, yeah, I've a, seen a Banksy too. pops up. In another, so it's like, you know, there's, you know, is one... Of, I don't know. 
It's fun to think about. It is. Um, yeah, he's done such a good job of, like, today, you know that I went to the A Weiwei exhibit. Yeah. And, like, in my mind, there are, uh, A Weiwei is in an, another world from Banksy. Mm-hmm. It's, it's almost separate. Absolutely. Uh, but I think they're both at the top of what it is that they do. Mm-hmm. And, um, but with very similar um, focuses and tone of what their pieces are about. Right. Uh, and but A Weiwei has to be who he is, and then the power behind what Banksy, what Banksy is doing anonymously, mm. speaks to his work as well. Mm-hmm. And I think what they both do so well is they get people talking. Yeah. Um, you know that to me, you know, being a, a fine artist, I you know, so many conversations, explaining art, defending art, shares sure. the place of art. And to me, one of the biggest purpose, you know, one of the biggest drives behind art is the intent. Yeah. And along with that intent comes, you know, just kind of your, you know, to me, that's what art does. It gets people talking. Art is a form of communication. Sure. And, you know, that in itself isn't, the art in itself isn't always the message. Sometimes the message is the conversation that it spurs. Totally. Yeah. Yeah. So did you, um, did you go back and go back to school eventually? No, I, I've been accepted to grad school three times and uh, <laughs> haven't, uh, someday. It's hard, right? It is. Um, you know, th- that's, uh, <laughs> you know, it's kind of in the back pocket right now for, you know, when my younger daughter is out of, out of the house, you know, maybe that's the time that I do it. Uh, How old is she? She is 15 now. Okay. Yeah. So maybe three more years. Yeah. And uh, <laughs> they're, they're looking at uh, career in photography now too. So that's pretty cool. Oh, that's yeah. awesome. Um, so a few more years of sacrifice, you think, before you can set up your own studio? And, yeah, I, I have a studio. I, I still I still paint almost daily. So I've got a studio at home. Awesome. I'm still making work. And what so, kind of work? Um, right now, I'm I'm doing a lot of painting right now. Printmaking is my real love, mm-hmm. um, but I don't have a press. Yeah, and I've got access to a press, but it's one of the, I you know had the the great privilege slash you know disadvantage of learning on like a top of the end line press. Mm-hmm. And now it's like, that's the press I want to, I want to work on. So, oh, man. yeah. So uh, I had a, uh, you know, getting a fine art degree in, at Iowa state, you know, on paper doesn't necessarily look like the most impressive things. Sure. Uh, but my printmaking professor was absolutely next level. Nice. And uh, what kind of printing press were you working on? Um, it was a, a Takich um, etching press. And, okay. And what uh, is that? I, don't even know. I mean, Takich is kind of, I mean, that is like the gold standard for, okay. for etching presses. And I'm, they, they make all different sizes and, you know, levels, but, you know, I was working on, you know, like a $13,000 press. Oh my God. And a lot of that was, you know, the, one of the things that made the professor who he was is he demanded that we have the best, the best. What's an etch? I don't even know what an etching press is. So etching is like, um, there's etching entirely like it's copper plate printing mm-hmm. and um the the press you can use the same press for re- any sort of relief printing mm-hmm. um but it's what makes these presses what they are is just they have such fine tolerances mm-hmm. and the bed is machined and the rollers are machined mm-hmm. and it's just i mean you can dial one of these things in and it's i mean it they they perform like you know a swiss watch i mean oh, they're just awesome. beautiful so yeah. and i've i've certainly you know there's there's that a lot to be said too it's like you know some great art has been made with 
you know, what you find in the garage. And, you know, I, I certainly appreciate that. And I, I do do some hand printing at home still, but. Would that be more letterpress or? No, letterpress is a different sort of press. Okay. So um, I guess if most people have seen an etching, like mm-hmm. Rembrandt's etchings in sure. um, mu- yeah. in museum, that it's. Uh, I get what you're saying now. The typical process is it's a copper plate that has lines etched into it. Mm-hmm. Um, there's etching, which is they're etched in with acid. And then engraving is a similar process, but rather than using acid, you're actually using hand tools to carve into the, the, okay. the plate. So you're, you're carving in reverse? Exactly. Uh, well, you. no, you're, you're carving. Yeah, it's the reverse image, but you're actually carving the positive space. So once you etch it, um, you you basically fill all those etched lines with ink and then run it through the press. Oh, gotcha. And you run the plate through the press with uh, with the paper. You soak oh, the paper in water so it kind of like, you know, really presses into those impressions. And then the paper lifts the ink it's out of the impressions. It's pretty multidisciplinary. Yeah. Like you're sculpting. Absolutely. Absolutely. And carving and, and then also worrying about the final output. Yeah. And, and sculpting is, uh, I mean, it, the, the people that I've never done engraving, engraving is a whole nother level because like I said, that's all just done by hand. Yeah. And, uh, I used to uh, share a studio with a guy in Kansas city who was, I want to say he was like in his eighties at the time, mm-hmm. you know, just like, you know, failing eyesight and, you know, just he'd been printing forever. His father was a really, um, well-renowned, um, printmaker, mm-hmm. like commercial printmaker. And, uh, you know, Jan would, you know, sit down, you know, he looked like this, you know, guy that had a hard time walking across the room, mm. but then he'd sit down at the bench and start engraving. It was just, it was like watching ballet. I mean, it was just amazing. What's your personal, uh, you know, kind of ethos behind sacrifice and making money versus being able to spend time on the things that you really want to? Like, how do you, yeah. how do you split that? Um, you know, I think that how to come to terms yeah, with it. <laughs> I'll let you or know when you. I figure it out. Um, no, I, I definitely I've had more success at times than others of you know making the time to do what it is that I really want to do. Yeah. Um, the older I get and the more experience that I get in different arenas, the more I realize that like unless you are a career artist, like mm-hmm. finding the job that really like fulfills you is really hard to do. Yeah. Cause I think there are very few jobs out there that the job into itself is very fulfilling. fulfilling yeah. yeah. Um, you know, and I don't want to say you know, this with a sense of resignation, but it's like, you know, there's a certain point where a job, no matter how great it is, mm-hmm. it's a means to an end. Totally. And so you're I, only flipping fries. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> the fries just right, changed. Right. <laughs> and, you know, short of, you know, being a surgeon, you know, I don't know that there are many jobs out there that you're, you know, you know, sure there's a lot, but there, you know, there are very few jobs out there where you're really making a huge difference in what you're doing. Yes. Um, you know, and you've got the people that are, you know, saving lives and, you know, doing the, you know, doing the cutting edge research, you know, the people that are like really making those, those giant shifts. Yeah. Outside of that, you know, the other 99% of us, you know, it's like, you know, our jobs are somewhat a means to an end. And that's not to say you should be miserable. I, right. I'm, I'm a great advocate of, a, you know, you need to work with good people and enjoy what you're doing. Um, but don't expect that job to be completely fulfilling. Yeah. And um, that's a hard thing, I think, for people in this day and age to hear. I, you know, I keep hearing all these, you know, employers have such a hard time finding people because they're probably just comparing you know, what they want to do mm-hmm. with what they actually should be doing. Right. Like I, I know so many construction guys, they're like, we can't find anybody to work for us. Right. Because none of these people want to do like physical labor. Exactly. <laughs> and it's like, because they keep comparing themselves to the Instagram, uh, 
influencers and I should be traveling and taking pictures in the jungle with my super hot uh, girlfriend exactly, instead yeah. of laying bricks or painting or doing drywall. Well, again, yeah, I think that's the, you know, so many people fall into that, you know, false reality. Yeah. And, and I think the same thing happens, you know, I think the, the influencers and the Instagramification of life is definitely one of the perpetrators. But then you look at actual workplaces that are perpetrating too. You know, people look at Google and it's like, oh, they ride scooters all day and they've got silly string in the office. And it's like, it's so cool. And it's like, no, it's not. But there's the flip side to it. You know, they, you know, they're at that office 22 hours a day. Yeah. And so, you know, and there's so certainly there's some people that really love it. And, For you know, sure. there's probably, there's certainly a handful of people at Google and Amazon and all those places that really are living their best and, you know, really enjoying what they're doing. Well, and I also, you know, the majority of people don't always self-reflect right. as often as you and I probably do. <laughs> Which Almost to a fault, yeah. Yeah, you know, I don't, I'm not, I'm not holding it against them. You know, I would say my dad is a great example of someone who is just very content and is very happy with his life. And I'm, I keep pushing him, I'm like, Dad, you know, what, what's your next phase? What are you going to do? What's your next goal? Yeah. And he's like, what are you talking about? Like, I've lived my life. Yeah. And it's not that he's resigned. It's just that he's like, I am content. Yeah. I don't have to have any higher goal to take place. And, you know, I often wonder, is my idea of productivity and projects and what I want to achieve in life hindering me being content? Mm -hmm. You know, and, and is that important? Yeah, there's that weird balance between content and drive and you know, being content, I think, you know, you listen to, you know, any, you know, sociologist or neurologist and they talk about, you know, like the optimum brain state, like content is something that we should all be striving for. Yeah. But content very quickly call it, falls into complacent. Yes. And, you know, very few people, you know, because we have this belief that we need to be happy. Happy is the goal. Yeah. But which I, I don't agree with happy is an elevated state. Yeah. And so content is a very reasonable goal or a very admirable goal. Yeah. But you can't stop there no. because part of what drives contentment is the drive for the next step. Yes. It's so complicated. Yeah, it really is. But that like my dad has fully realized that <laughs> he's just super content. Maybe your dad is like just this like burgeoning like Zen master. Maybe yeah. he's like achieved an elevated he's a state. suburban Buddha. <laughs> He just loves yeah. soccer and, uh, you know, working out and yeah. just doing his daily, yeah. daily rituals. Well, you know, with the, the idea of contentment and, you know, drive and, you know, just kind of work ethics and whatnot, you know, something mm -hmm. that I, I definitely noticed, you know, everybody has their biases and you know, it's like, you need, I, I try to, you know, believe and purport that, you know, I'm a absolutely, you know, zero judgment person. Mm-hmm. But the one thing that I will very much admit is, you know, there's a, a great divide in my mind between people with and without conviction. Mm. And I think conviction falls exactly into what you're talking about. Like, you know, with contentment and drive and whatnot, I see far too many people, um, you know, in this day and age that are just willing to not care. Yeah. And it's like, you know, believe in something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, you know. We can't teach that, though. No. It's hard, you know, people that just... You know, I've, you, you run into people like this every day um, that you do feel that don't care about anything. And ultimately, they probably don't really care too much about their own life. Mm -hmm. But if you tell them that, they're not going to take that 
you know, they'll be like, fuck you. Yeah, exactly. That's immediate <laughs> offense. And they, yeah, they go on the offensive about it. And it's like, I care about things. And then it's like, and they start listing things that they care about and they're not. Right. It's, that's not conviction. Yeah. But again, you know, it's still, there's another, you have to still respect them for whatever stage of life that they're in. Absolutely. And, uh, you, you know, it is, it is easy to come to a quick judgment on somebody that you think is uh, not living up to their full potential. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's, you know, I think that that, again, it's a live by example kind of thing to where you cast no judgment and you just do the things that make you happy without trying to correct anyone else. Absolutely. Well, something I, I definitely, I credit my wife greatly with this, you know, kind of instilling this thought into me is the idea that, you know, each one of us are living our own realities. Yeah. And, you know, she uh, is, works with the special education or, you know, the special needs population. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, she sees it every day and it's sure. like, there's nothing wrong with those kids. Yeah. They're just, it's a different reality. And, you it know, is. those kids' parents have a different reality than, you know, most parents do. And, you know, you take that and you extrapolate across the entire population of the planet. Yeah. Everybody, you know, there are infinite number of influences behind and variables behind why you do what you do. Yeah. And this isn't to justify anything because some people's realities are kind of awful. Yeah. And I mean, we see that play out and, um, you don't want to condone it, Mm -mm. but you know, before you, you know, get so quick to judge somebody, it's like, okay, what led to this very point? Yeah. What's the backstory? It, it is also very relative because, you know, we can bitch and complain about going to our jobs. And then meanwhile, there's plenty of people all across the world that would be like, I'd love to have that opportunity Absolutely. to make that kind of money. Mm-hmm. Are you kidding me? Right. You know, but <laughs> it's so tricky. I think it's like, you need to you need to realize how lucky you actually are in in the large um, in the larger view of the world, but then you can't also let that you know be where you stay. Either. Right, right. It's a it's a juggling act, honestly. Um, but yeah, I don't know. My mind is kind of mushy today, and I apologize <laughs> for that. <laughs> no, I like where this is going. It's good. It's good. Uh, so speaking of side projects yes. and and maintaining, you just brought me this beautiful jar of Urban Hives honey. That is honey. Collected by my little worker bees in my backyard. That's awesome. It I, looks I should say so my bees. good they're, too. They're, it's so smooth and liquidy. From what I understand, this is my the first season that I've had a harvest from my yard. But from what I understand, that's really high quality honey because it's it's really light in color. It's and liquid it, gold. It, it, it is and literally. It flows. And <laughs> it looks so good. <laughs> it's really good. I'm I'm excited for you to try. Oh, it. I'm pumped. I'm just ready for my immune system to get kicked <laughs> in the butt. Yeah, I've got uh, somewhere in the neighbor. I've got. Um, three hives in the backyard, mm-hmm. um, somewhere in the neighborhood, but based upon typical populations, that means somewhere between 75 and a hundred thousand bees in the backyard. Oh my God. And it's watching them work, like opening up the hive and like watching just the, yeah. the I mean, truly the, the hive mind. I understand where that, like that concept or that, you know, that phrase hive mind comes from, like watching them all work on to a singular focus, a singular effort. Yeah. It's pretty amazing. How'd you get turned on to bees? I've wanted to have bees for a while. Um, I've, you know, am slowly building, you know, this, this urban homestead, you know, I've got, I I live on about three quarters of an acre, which is not a a huge piece of land, but enough to like actually sustain. Yeah. Um, I've got chickens back there. I've got a really big garden. Mm -hmm. Um, the garden provides produce for us throughout the year. Um, and then bees just kind of seem to be uh, a nice addition and, uh, Credit to uh, our good friend Iraq, who uh, as I uh, uh, used to work with Iraq, and uh, his roommate actually is a beekeeper. Okay, and has started actually this uh, um, Urban Hives STL 
is is Nelson's outfit. And oh, I thought this was you. No, so the 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 honey is mine, but the oh, gotcha. or from my bees. But uh, Nelson is kind of the the, the operation behind it. Um, mm-hmm. He's been working with bees for years, and he's you know responding to the need to diversify bees and get more bees out there. Um, he's um, trying to put bees into more locations just to kind of reestablish populations. Interesting. So, um, you know, it started as, as me fostering, you know, he came to the, the house one day and he's like, yeah, this is perfect. So did you build a hive or what, what is it called? A hive? Yeah. It's it's, yeah. The hive. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So he brought the hives out. And so, uh, I've learned, you know, it's been a great learning process, you know, mm-hmm. kind of like what, what constitutes the hive, you know, why, you know, why hives are built the way they are and why, you know, they look the way they do on the inside. And, you know, when it, you know, early spring, we add more boxes to the top and that's where, you know, the honey, what the, the honey that's collected, that's where it's all, you know, stored by the bees. And there's this whole, I mean, there, it's a very detailed process Sure, and it's fascinating. Yeah. Just watching them. Yeah. Um, what, what were you saying right before we started recording the podcast that they just determined that the bee is the most important? Yeah. I, I, I think it was a study put out by the Royal Academy of Sciences in London. They said the bee is the most important creature on the planet. That's and just because of how they react with the rest of the, the uh, food chain. And, and Well, I mean, they're pretty much responsible for the food chain. You know, like the, the, the honeybee, you know, there are a lot of pollinators on the planet, but mm-hmm. the honeybee is the most prolific pro- pollinator. <laughs> and um, there are, I mean, there's a couple hundred different varieties of honeybees around the planet, but they're all suffering the same um, effect right now. I mean, the populations across all honeybees is just plummeting. And do they, do they live in... Like how many of the ecosystems? Uh, the honeybees are on every planet except Antarctica. Every or every continent. Country. Yeah, continent. Yeah, planet. <laughs> there are honeybees on every planet. No. Um, every continent except Antarctica. And as a matter of fact, I think that there there may actually be some research hives at McMurdo Station. Oh, there, okay. there were at, at some point, but natively, um, yeah, they're on every other continent because they hibernate. Right. right. Yep. Yeah. 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 My bees hibernate in that. And uh, isn't the hive like, isn't like some crazy, like 75 or 80 degrees in the winter? Yeah. They do this crazy thing where they will like, they'll continue to circular heating. Yeah. They, certain bees will wake up at certain times to, you know, beat mm-hmm. their wings to, you know, circulate, um, heat, you know, the body heat basically throughout the hives. And then they'll do the opposite too during the summertime when it's really hot. Um, they do this thing called bearding where a bunch of bees will, mm. will kind of congregate around mm-hmm. the outside opening and beat their wings to basically fan out all the hot air. Is that when people like grab them and like, you know, like you can grab clumps of yeah, them? And yeah, they'll, they'll, they'll gather. I mean, pretty much anywhere that there's a queen, they mm-hmm. will like gather around that. Yeah. So you want to see people do like the beard, the bee beards and yeah, all the that. Be- yeah. The bee be- be- beards. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, they, I mean, they're so integral to the food chain. Yeah. And, you know, then you've got, you know, the, the web of life that we all learned about in grade school, you know, they're kind of like the linchpin of all of it. And uh, that's interesting. And are, are, are they still having the mass deaths worldwide? I yeah. know that that's been kind of a, yeah, there's a, um, and it's different they're, They haven't really pinpointed one specific cause and it, it mm-hmm. their thing, you know, it, it differs from one area to another because, you know, there's obviously pesticides and herbicides that are causing an issue. Um, but now then they're finding, you know, there are, there's mite issues. Mm. Um, a lot of times, you know, bees will just decide a certain area is inhospitable and they will, they'll swarm and leave. (laughs) And then, you know, it's, but the overall, yeah, the populations are, are continuing to drop. I mean, I feel like we were hearing a lot about it, um, maybe five years ago or something. And then it just kind of dissipated. Well, because our, 
our new attention cycle. span. Exactly. There was something else to, to pay attention well, to. And I, yeah, I mean, I feel like there, you, you'll hear about a die-off of something and be like, oh, and everything's back to yeah. normal. Yeah. Well, <laughs> I, I'm doing what I can to, to fight the die-off. I, uh, this, I just had this, you know, this pit in my stomach uh, the other night. I was sitting on the couch watching a movie, and I heard this sound that if you grew up in the Midwest, you know, in the 70s or 80s, you know the sound of the mosquito fogger. Of course. And oh, so I yeah, heard that yeah. down the street, and um, my... Uh, hives are at the back of my yard and just past the yard is a, a parking lot for a, a Catholic school. Hmm. And I knew they were probably okay because that being private property, the, the truck wasn't going up there. But I went and stood in that parking lot for an hour to make sure that that fogger did not come into near my bees. <laughs> I wasn't going to let it happen. <laughs> yeah. Sounded like fucker. <laughs> Stay away, fogger. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um they uh, are pesticides getting more like are they developing pesticides that are more efficient? Well, they're or more sensitive to other sensitive to humans, okay. but not because the uh, you know if you you do the research on what they put into the uh, um, the foggers, it's a neurotoxin that will only affect insects. Oh, they okay. say you know it's safe for mammals, it's safe for humans. You know you don't want to stand in the fog, but you know yeah. it's not going to affect you. Um, but neurotoxins that affect mosquitoes have very similar effect on bees. Gotcha. And so it's kind of, you know, we're... Yeah, and some un, un, uh, unwitting fogger. Exactly. Can come up and kill your Exactly. And yeah, that would, you know, it would wipe them out in a second. And, <laughs> you know, we're seeing that same thing, not just with the, the foggers and the, the pesticides, but, you know, a lot of the, the herbicides, you know, the, the effect that they have on, on plants, it, yeah. it has, you know, a kind of a parallel effect on, on insects. So what's the answer then? Stop spraying poison on your yard. I know, but mosquitoes are the worst creature ever. <laughs> I, you know, that's as someone that, who gets bit yeah. very often. Yeah. Like I'll, I'll get bit in my house. Yeah. Like they'll somehow find a way in here and bite me in the middle of the night. That's your blood chemistry. Some it's, people are just more prone. So you would say maybe an alternative is how could we determine something that we could take that wouldn't harm us that would make mosquitoes less interested in us? I, I think that's a, yeah, some sort of like <laughs> prophylactic. Because they suck. They do. And, you know, that's something <laughs> that I, I, I struggle with, and, you know, just in my, my desire to, you know, really kind of, you know, be the, the best, you know, citizen of Earth that I can. Mm -hmm. You know, yeah, I, I, we don't want to kill mosquitoes, but mosquitoes are responsible for more death on the planet than anything else. Of course. Yeah. And so it's like, you know, we, you know, we need to, um, you know, we need to address that. Yeah. But part of the reason that happens is because we've thrown so much out of balance. Yeah. And, you true. know, you look at, you know, this is a much more benign, you know, example, but, you know, you go out, you know, West County and people are, you know, bitching about the fact that they've got deer in their yard. And it's because the farmers killed all the, the coyotes. Yep. And it's, you know, the balance is thrown off. Yeah. And we've done, we've done that so many times over with so many different things that, you know, if we'd get out of the way, yeah, things would work as they, as they should. And, you know, we need the we need mosquitoes because you know people like to have you know the purple martins in their yard you know you know what purple martins eat mosquitoes <laughs> do you uh do you agree in population control or like ethical hunting or anything like that sometimes yeah um i and again it's one of those i i understand the cause behind it um i don't agree with the hunting portion of it mm -hmm. but i understand like why sometimes that needs to be put in place but again it's put in place because we've we've thrown the balance sure. so much or bringing uh, certain species over and they, you know, like bunnies, yeah. for example. Exactly. You know, they came from Spain, I believe. Right. Or you look, yeah, um, 
Same thing with um, or the, hogs in Hawaii. Yeah. yeah. Or down in Texas. I right. know, like, feral hogs are just, population numbers are exploding. Right. And they're like, we just have to kill these things exactly. because they're going to kill everything. Right. And so, and I, I truly appreciate the need to restore balance. Uh, you know, I try to do that in my own yard. I, I'm slowly transitioning my yard only to native plants. You know, mm -hmm. only things that, you know, have historically grown in this area. Sure. Um, and, it, you know, it's tough. We've got honeysuckle growing out there, which is, you know, smells really good. And the hummingbirds love it and the bees love it. But it's it'll take over everything. Because sounds, it's not from around here. Yeah, I know. It sounds like you have a little garden of Eden in your backyard. It's a pretty special place. I gotta get out there. I like it. It's good. <laughs> it's uh, I I reached the kind of the kind of the holy grail of like you know homesteads or gardens um, mm -hmm. earlier this year. Um, songbirds are kind of considered like the if you, if you have songbirds in an environment, you've got a complete ecosystem. Oh, that's because interesting. Only certain insects and certain nectars will attract songbirds, huh. and you have to kind of have everything below that in order to have songbirds. And we had all sorts. We have got purple martins and finches and all sorts of stuff in there now. Oh, so. that's great, man! Yeah. It sounds it sounds just idyllic. Success. <laughs> <laughs> So what's uh what's your what's your next steps aside you know eventually going back to school to get this MFA in mm -hmm. printmaking, um, you know working to support your family, mm -hmm. uh, is there you know is there a passion project that you're looking to undertake or is it really just kind of like I'd like to have the time to learn more about printmaking and then see what that yeah. evolves into. Um, art's definitely part of it, and like I said, I continue to make art. I've got this like contradiction in my mind uh -huh. about an MFA. Because uh -huh. like you, I, sorry, the go need, ahead. The I need for it. Yeah. Say. I mean, as an artist, I have no need for it. Um, right. you know, it really, it, it's not going to change the way that I make art. Mm -hmm. Um, the only reason that I want to get an MFA is because I'd love to be a studio professor. Yeah. Um, and a lot of that goes back to the professor I was talking about when I was in college, you know, he really, he changed the way that I look at art. He changed the way that I make art. Um, he was just, you know, he was the type of person that I want to spend like every day in the studio. With. I mean, I think you'd be a great teacher. I'd love to be a teacher. <laughs> and, and that's, I mean, truly that's the one thing standing in the way is having an MFA. Yeah. So, you know, maybe ultimately uh, that will happen. Um, but until that point, I can keep making art. Uh, you know, as far as passion projects and just, you know, kind of what's next, um, this is going to sound really idealistic, but this is truly like kind of what I feel like my life is, you know, kind of distilled down to is mm -hmm. I want to do my best to lead by example. Um, that's why I, you know, there are a lot of things in my life that, you know, I could, you know, stand on a soapbox and say, do this. And it's like, I, I'm not, a you know, a proselytizer, mm -hmm. but I'll answer any question that you ask me. Yeah. And so, you know, I'm just trying to do my best, you know, with, with the bees, with the garden, with, you know, just being a good person. I think you, you kind of nail it, man. <laughs> I'm trying, I'm trying real hard. I want to be more like Blaine. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, there's some downsides. There's, don't get me wrong. I mean, there's, there's some rough days, but. I think that's true with everybody though. Yeah. And I think that, um, you know, I compares, you know, comparing your life to anyone else's is just, it's not, it, not anything that's beneficial to you or them or, or to anyone else looking to you. Absolutely. And it's, um, I think that's kind of basically in a nutshell, the problem with the whole influencer lifestyle is just, People are constantly comparing themselves to someone else instead of looking at the good things that they have. Absolutely. And the more that we compare ourselves to other people, um, the less likely we are to allow ourselves to be vulnerable, yeah. which, you know, I think vulnerable has kind of a bad stigma where a lot of people hear vulnerable and they think, you know, open to be taken advantage of. Mm -hmm. But I look at, you know, I, I think vulnerable as, you know, really being open and honest. To change. Yeah. And 
there's so little like honesty. And again, going back to the, the self-reflection you were talking about, it's like, yeah. you know, to, to really reflect on who and what you are requires you to open yourself up to other people. Definitely. And not be afraid of it. You right. know, and, I, and that just comes with experience and age as well to, yep. uh, you know, not lose some of the, in our case, like the machismo of like, oh, growing up and like, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Blah, 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 and like dropping names and all that kind of <laughs> shit. Um, what is um, that, that project that you do every year on your birthday? Oh, you, my, my manifesto. Yeah. Yeah. Then what is that? So that started, I want to say probably around my like 35th birthday. Uh-huh. Um, I was, you know, just writing, I, I write a lot. I've got a, a sketchbook with me at all times that, you know, sometimes it's sketches, sometimes it's just words. Mm-hmm. And, um, one year that sketchbook kind of started becoming just kind of like my thoughts on life. And the list started growing as I got closer to my birthday. I'm like, okay, this is, you know, kind of my birthday gift to anybody else that's interested. So it was kind of at that point, my, my 35 kind of rules or thoughts on life. And I've added to it every year. Self-generated or is it influenced by other readings and... Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Combination. I mean, a lot of it is, you know, self-generated based upon experience, Mm -hmm. based upon, you know, things that I've done, things that I wish I've done, um, things that I've read that have like, you know, caused me to kind of change my way. Yeah. What's some some of the key uh, points in the manifesto? um, The the ones that I... I You can recall. Yeah. (laughs) It's, it's up to 46 now. So there's a bunch of them. Um, you know, one of them is, um, call them. They probably want to hear, they'll probably want to talk to you too. Hmm. Um, allow yourself to fall deeply in love with another person. Mm -hmm. Um, cumin is the secret to uh, good Mexican food. (laughs) (laughs) Um, and this year's actually the, the addition, uh, this most recent year, um, goes back to something we were talking about was, um, you know, defy convention. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, we're all so stuck into what we think we should be doing. Yeah. And, you know, that's so many parts of life. It is. I think, you know, man, some of that stuff too just gets, um, uh, you think that you're being original or think that you're doing something interesting. And then you're like, how much of this is actually, you know, pre premeditated or, you know, right. Did, what's the word? Mm-hmm. Kind of um, not necessarily just you. Mm-hmm. You know, I guess that's the whole free will versus yeah. fate. Right. Um, which, which side would you pick of that? <laughs> well, yeah, and you know, it's the, yeah, where do you want to fall in? Where do you, what do you want your legacy to be? And a lot of what your legacy is, is based upon what's informing your decisions. True. Yeah. Um, you know, a good example then, you know, my, my wife and I both, you know, have arrived at this about the, you know, the same time that, you know, we both had, you know, typical, you know, suburban mid- Midwestern upbringings. Mm-hmm. Um, but a lot of that inform, was informed by, you know, here's what you do. You go to college, you get a job, you have kids, you know, you just, you know, there's the, the path that you follow. And, you know, in retrospect now, it's like, you know, we probably would have done things maybe differently or a different timing or whatnot. And it's like, you know, I still would have married her and I still, you know, you know, my kids are amazing, but it's like, you know, there's, there's a lot of things that led up to those that it's like, okay, well, would I have, you know, I got a job right after college because, well, that's what you do. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, so we're doing everything that we can to kind of instill into our two, like, okay, you know what, what do you want to do? And again, not to like the detriment of your safety, your health or anybody around you, but truly like in your soul, what do you want to do? And it really came into play. Um, my oldest daughter's a sophomore in college now mm-hmm. and, uh, she's studying costume design. And, you know, when she was in her, 
senior year of high school and applying to colleges and whatnot, she was getting a lot of the same questions that I got when mm-hmm. I was going to fine art school. Like, well, wh- what, what's we your backup plan? What's your, <laughs> what's your plan B? What are you going to, what's, what's your real job going to be? Yeah. And so I sat down with her one night and said, okay, so here's your plan. No plan B. Yeah. And told her that, you know, if you are truly going to pursue a creative path, that has to be your singular path. Yeah. Because anybody that has gone out there with, you know, getting a degree in fine arts and a major in business, mm-hmm. guess what they're doing now? Or a yeah. minor in business. They're they're working in business. Now. Yeah. Because if you've got that safety net, you're gonna fall into it. That's a that's a great point. Um it just brings to mind, you know, my dad again, and I think about his path that he took and he went into business and marketing and um, he didn't like it Mm -hmm. and he did it for a little bit and then dropped out and went back to school and he was about 33, 34, 35 uh, to become a soccer coach and fitness professor, you know, and when I stopped working in order to do whatever I was going to do 12 years ago, he was very supportive of that. And, um, and my mother, on the other hand, who I credit with giving me more of the subversive mindset, she's like, what are you doing? You're making good money. <laughs> but he was just like, I, I believe in you. Yeah. You know, you should do what you want to do. Um, and I, you know, I don't know why I keep bringing this back to my dad, but it's just uh, that just support of people and doing what they're doing, especially your own children, I think can speak volumes. Oh, totally. Even if they're making a mistake, yeah. you know? Like, because right. we're t- making mistakes is a part of the learning process. Of course, yeah. yeah. No, I credit my it's the parents. most valuable part because oh. you never listen to what your parents say. Exactly. Anyways. Like, whatever, I want to figure it out for myself. Right. <laughs> if you don't make mistakes, you don't grow because it's right. like that's how you figure out, you know, where the lines are or what's possible or, you know, oh, wait, maybe I want to go beyond that. Maybe I didn't, maybe the mistake was I didn't push hard enough. Or, yeah. yeah. No, I credit my parents quite a bit with, you know, the support that I got because they, and I think they'd be the first to admit they don't understand what mm-hmm. I do. They don't understand why I do what I do. They're, they were both in medicine. And yeah. so what I was pursuing was so foreign to, you know, their back, you know, my dad was in medical administration. My mom was a nurse mm-hmm. and, you know, spending, you know, 20 hours a day in a studio doesn't really make sense to them, yeah. but they supported it. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, I think there was a, there was a big lesson in that, that I have taken on with me. It's like, you don't have to understand something to respect it. No, not yeah. at all. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that that's, um, to be honest, I think that's at the core of like connecting with other humans is like, look, man, I may not follow your religion. I may not agree with you politically, but at the core of it is just lo- like basic love for one another. Absolutely. And if you have that, and if you have that, even if you, the person is not a good person, mm-hmm. if you just clear out everything else, I think you're, you're able to connect on this basic human level of saying, well, we're both here. We're yeah. both experiencing the same reality at the exact same time. Mm-hmm. There's one connection. Let's build from there. Absolutely. That's so. a, one of my, you know, one of the people that I draw a lot of inspiration from, I know a lot of people too, is Bourdain. Anthony Bourdain yeah. did an amazing job of doing exactly what you said, where, yeah. you know, he, <laughs> he identified early on that, you know, no matter our Such religion. A great oh, he was that's, amazing. I mean, that's what he was. Yeah. You know, throw everything else out. He was just a great fucking writer. He was a, an amazing storyteller. <sighs> and he identified just through his own time in the kitchen that, you know, you strip away religion, ideology. Yeah. We all have to sit down and eat every day. Yep. And there is great learning and like passage of information to be had at a table. 
Definitely. Yeah. Man, don't get me started on that guy because <laughs> we'll, we'll, we'll be talking for another two yeah. hours. <laughs> I just, I finished a painting um, a couple months ago that's uh, hanging in a, a friend's house now. Um, but it was, the, the title of the painting was based on a conversation that never happened. And it was, you know, I've got my list of people that, you know, I'd love mm. to sit down and have a drink with one day. Yeah. And he was at the top of the list. Yeah, man. And um, the, all of my artwork incorporates type somehow. And, you know, a lot of it goes back to, you know, my time as an art director, mm. but also just, you know, my, my kind of artistic awakening was pop art. Mm. And so, you know, working type into it just seems natural. I would say mine was too, actually. Yeah. It, um, and within the past 15 years is yeah. when I kind of really started to understand and um, devour art, yeah. you know, and, and um, just really it, it for a long time. And I just talked about this with Adrian um, uh, in one of the podcasts, you know, it's it takes you a while to understand what context is. Mm -hmm. And I think once you learn that and there's not really an easy way to learn how and what context is and how it serves art. Right. Um, but once you f really start to get that, you understand why art is the most important thing in the world. Absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> and, and I think pop, pop art is a great kind of entry, you know, point of entry for that understanding because to me, you know, it, I do a lot of just on my own, just reading and research into the connection between art and music because yeah. they influence either, each other so much. And usually when you think of pop art, it's, Velvet Underground and punk, and you know it's like Andy the music Warhol. of the sound, exactly. Yeah. Um, but to me, like if you kind of look at it the other direction, pop art is hip hop. Pop mm. art is like just this great culmination of everything that came before it. And if you really look in it, and mm -hmm. you look at the context, like you're talking about, yeah. you see so much art history within contained within pop art because yeah. they were all, you know, they they were all devotees of. The masters. Mm -hmm. I mean, you look at uh, you know a John's painting, and mm -hmm. there's Duchamp in there, and there's yep. Rembrandt in there, and there's um, Delacroix, and you know so many artists that you know he you know revered, and you know you see the progression. And there's uh, there one of the you know the bits of art history that always stick with me. There's a a, a, term, a German term Kunstvollen. It's the tendencies in art, hmm. and you can take like basically every painting created in the history of time, and you, there's a there's a a bridge from one to the next. Oh yeah. And you, you see, you know, a painting painted today, you can look at it and see what from the past, you know, influenced that. What do you think about like, uh, the current kind of art scene in terms of like people ref almost, it's very meta and very, it's like reflecting on reflection mm -hmm. and, you know, uh, I'm trying to think of some artists off the top of my head, but just utilizing, you know, either social media into their work. Is, is there anybody that stuck out to you? Yeah, there's uh there's one guy, Robert Montgomery. Okay. Um, he's doing a lot of, he to me is, you know, he's using social media a lot because a lot of his pieces are, mm -hmm. you know, very temporary installations. Okay. And um, so he'll use that as kind of the delivery vehicle. Um, but to me that, again, the Kunstfeld, that's Barbara Kruger. You know, yeah. the only difference is, you know, she did, you know, she, you know, screened it onto canvas. So we've got it for eternity. Yeah. Um, but it's that kind of that same idea. You know, she was definitely reflecting on reflection and, you know, and I think, you know, using reflection as, you know, in its, you know, truest term, she turned the mirror on all of us. Yeah. She's an interesting example too, <laughs> with all the Supreme stuff mm -hmm. and then how she flipped that yep. back on itself mm -hmm. <laughs> and that, that. I mean, that's a very, um, I think that's a great case study basically for the current art Absolutely. world. Yeah. 
like and, it, and commercialism. Absolutely. And like any other genre, you know, it, it gets played out really quickly. Yeah. Because I think that, you know, you've got people like, you know, Robert Montgomery is, I think, somebody definitely worth checking out because he, um, you know, he's got, there's some really thought provoking mm-hmm. messages, um, you know, and true, just like, you know, written messages in his pieces. Um, but then other people see that and like, okay, I'll just put a bunch of words on there. I'm going to make it, you know, and it, you see the same thing in poetry right now. Mm-hmm. And uh, so does he create ef- like uh, ephemeral art is what you're saying? Or the, what's his medium? There, you know, a lot of times it's, you know, it'll be, uh, you know, a, an environmental installation where it'll mm-hmm. be like, you know, he'll build a scaffolding and, you know, the words will be, you know, cast upon, you know, kind of set upon that. Gotcha. Um, but again, they're, they're temporary. These aren't, you know, permanent. So he doesn't sculptures. really sell any art. He does. He started to do more paintings on canvas now, oh, okay. um, which is interesting. His work has kind of taken a little shift. Um, but you know, he, um, one of his, uh, pieces that, you know, just a top of mind, it's like, he'll, like install some letters, like within a swimming pool. Mm-hmm. And it's, you know, it, it's less about the space and more about, about the message at that point. Gotcha. Um, or, you know, he'll do things where it's like, you know, it's, you know, letters that are, you know, a flame where mm-hmm. it's, you know, it's there, it's very temporary. So mm-hmm. social media has become great for him because, you know, then you can yeah. deliver and it's, you know, you, you have, again, you know, you look back to a lot of, you know, Robert Smithson and like the environmental artists, it's mm-hmm. like, you know, there's those, you know, you've got this, you know, rock sculpture that's out in the, you know, great salt Lake. Yeah. Um, and you can go there to see it or, you know, the way most of us are going to see it is a, fic- a picture, you know, a yeah. book or on Well, or on I feel Instagram. like uh, modern artists have to become also very good photographers mm-hmm. because then it's like you can get the idea across, you can sell prints yep. <laughs> of your work. Exactly. Uh, that's kind of one of the things I noticed today at the A Weiwei exhibit is that he's a badass photographer, mm-hmm. you know, and I, I previously only really knew the middle finger um work that he did right. you know flicking off the white house flicking off and that was all primarily instagram wasn't it no that was prior oh was he was he doing prints of that oh, like, he, well okay. he, he was shooting that on film okay back, cool. like that was way nice. way before instagram and um but then he had a series of photographs he made of the nest uh the stadium in beijing right for the, the olympics, the olympics right yeah. and um they're gorgeous mm-hmm. they're i mean like insanely good photographs and I, you know, I don't think you think of him immediately as a photographer. No. That to me is something, you know, that really helps bolster my respect for somebody is like, you know, okay, show me what else you can do. It's like, you know, yeah. there's whatever, what you're known for, mm-hmm. uh, but then, you know, show me what else. And, you know, it's not to say that, you know, you have to, you know, be like this multidisciplinarian to, you know, impress me, but it's like, I want to know more yeah. of the story. I want to know what influences you and what inspires Span you. Bandwidth. Exactly. Yeah. Well, and going back to Bourdain, that was one of the reasons that I really respected mm-hmm. him was, mm-hmm. you know, everybody knew him as this chef and this writer. Yeah. One of the best interviews I ever heard of them is they talked for an hour about punk rock and comic books. He <laughs> loved comic books. He loved <laughs> punk rock. And, you know, that, you know, he talked, a lot of the talk was about, you know, the, the pulse of a kitchen is based upon the music that's playing. Yeah. And he's like, you know, if I walked into a kitchen and Iggy and the Stooges were playing, I knew I was in a good place. Or, you know, he was actually, I don't know that it was ever finished, but he and a friend were working on a graphic novel. Hmm. And it's like, okay, that to me is super impressive because now you've got like this other thing. Yeah. 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 It's funny. My friend Sid, who, uh, he lives in Seattle and I did a podcast with him in this first, in these first few that I've done. And he says the two books that influenced him the most were uh, Anthony Bourdain, Kitchen Confidential, and Henry Rollins, Get in the Van. Nice. And he said they're basically books about 
how what they're doing and what world they're involved in sucks. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like Anthony Bourdain's talking about how much he hates, not hates, but kind of pulling back like uh, the the love affair with the restaurant world. Right. He's it's, like, it's not as romantic as we make it no, out. No, and be. like something consistent in his writing is like, don't ever start a restaurant. Right. It's the most foolish thing you can do, <laughs> which is kind of like a wink. Sure. And, and a nod. But it's also like, he's like, man, I hate this, but I love it. Yeah. You know, and I, I, I've always appreciated that kind of dichotomy. Well, and I think every, you know, soldier of an effort has that version of the, the starving artist or the, yeah. you know, the, the burned artist. And it's, a, you know, it, it's, it's funny to poke fingers at, but, you know, there's certainly some, you know, there's some truth to it. And, you know, I don't want to you know, sound like the brooding artist that is like, oh, life's so hard. I have to, but it's like, you know, there's, when you put your soul into something, you're going to have those times that it really sucks. Yeah. And you have those occasional like starbursts that it's like, okay, this is why I do it. A lot of the other time really sucks, but you have those moments and it's, it's, I can, you know, reading kitchen confidential, I could totally see where he was coming from. You know, I, you know, my experience in the the kitchen was, you know, I I used to be a busboy at the pasta house. So, you Mm -hmm. know, it's like (laughs) never anything like at the level that he's talking about. Um, But being in the, you know, spending time in the studio and spending time, you know, justifying and, and realigning what I do in other people's minds. That's yeah. the hard part. Well, I, that, and I think it's just a, a nutshell anecdote for life is that these people that we look up to like musicians, you know, Henry Rollins who hates touring, but they love music so much that they put up with the rest of the bullshit. Absolutely. And I kind of think that that larger takeaway is that like, we love what we do in life that we'll do something else to make money in order to have those glimpses and the moments and the weekends and, and right. the after hours yep. to do the things that we really want to do. Exactly. So and that's inspiring. Doing, yeah. They're just doing it at a, at a different scale, but it's, yeah. it's a lot of the same, same motivation. Totally. Yeah. Right on. I feel like we could keep talking for another two hours. We should, we should do like part <laughs> th- two and three and four and just like make this a whole like spin off podcast. It's like, I feel like my synapses or something are not clicking today though. I'm, I'm having trouble making uh, connections like I normally do. And I'm just like, hmm, yeah, that's cool. Yeah. I feel like I'm in a listening state instead of actually trying to be a host. <laughs> I'll keep talking. You can just kick back if you want to take a nap or something. I'll just keep talking about things. So hey guys, give me a topic. Hey, Kevin's sleeping right now. So we're going to talk a little quieter. <laughs> Is there anything else that you did want to cover? There, there's so much. There, I know, there's, man. There's so many things. It's like, you know, I could talk about art for days. I could talk about, uh, I mean, music's one of those things. I have zero musical ability, but I know what I like. Yeah. And, you know, I can, I just, I like talking because talking's learning. Or, yes. No, listening's learning. Yes. Yeah. Well, I say uh, talking is a active way of reaffirming the things that you think you know. Mm-hmm. And a lot of people are saying, oh, why'd you start doing a podcast? And I tell them, I'm like, I'm so tired of taking in other content mm-hmm. that other people have done. And I think, you know, I have these ideas and these concepts and these, um, you know, uh, manifesto-y type of things like you were talking about mm-hmm. that I believe in. Mm-hmm. But it's hard for me to say that I believe them without actually saying what it is that I believe. Right. And so this is really kind of, um, it's kind of like therapy for me, like in that I am giving words to what it is that I think. Mm-hmm. Because I know, you know, in my quiet mind, in my un, un, unvocalized mind, I know what I stand for. Yep. But I need to get better at putting them into actual words. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's kind of been 
one of the impetuses of doing this podcast is, you know, I just need to fucking talk and, right. and like realize what it is that I actually do believe in. Right. Well, and that's and uh, most people don't have the opportunity to do that. Right. You know, that's the very reason that uh, that I paint. You yeah. know, I I had a, a you know a two episode podcast. You know, and it, it as you found it's it's a lot more work than than I you know signed up for. So it, it never went. You did far. a podcast. Yeah. It, oh yeah. Two episodes. It oh was, no way. Yeah. It was uh, <laughs> uh, Rebecca Rush, the mountain biker. You know, who oh, just cool. you know any any excuse to sit down and talk bikes, I'm yeah. all for it. And she's just a fantastic person. I I really enjoy spending time with her. Um, and then the other episode was the. Uh, Head entomologist at the Field Museum in Chicago. Oh my god! Which was just oh, cool, I do remember this cool conversation. So, um, and it was very much what you're saying. It's like you know, I I sought out people that are doing the things that I wish I could call that my job. And it's mm-hmm. like so, I like kind of talking through my reality a little bit. But um, have always found that you know that's why I get back in the studio is the you know when I paint that that's the life through my filter. Yeah. And you know along those lines, you know, I've something that I've uh, you know kind of risen my flag on a lot stronger lately is, you know, some, you show somebody your art and the first question is, well, what does it mean? Mm. And I won't answer that question anymore because this, uh, you know, I, I, this is not original idea. This, you know, this, that idea or just kind of that stance came, you know, to my favorite artists, Basquiat and Jasper Johns. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, Basquiat was was famous for talking about, you know, he he wouldn't answer the, you know, right. his thing was, you know, would you ask Charlie Parker why he played the drums? You know, <laughs> why he hit that note? And, you know. Yeah, his, well, his responses are pretty classic. Yeah, they're so classic. And uh, then there was, a, you know, Johns had a retrospective out in Los Angeles um, about a year and a half ago. And uh, there was a big yeah, article. Abroad. Yeah, yeah, and it was amazing. I went there right after that. <laughs> oh, it was, it was. There are two times that I have been brought to tears in a museum. Wow. That was one of them. Which that, piece? Um, so Target. Yeah, Target's the reason I changed my major from graphic design to fine arts, hmm. and you know, seeing it hanging there. Uh, that and then when uh, St. Louis Art Museum had the Monet exhibit, and they had all three panels of one of the water lily. Um, uh, up and just like seeing it its entirety i mean that's that's just gut-wrenching i yeah. mean it's it's amazing um but right after um john or right after the opening of john's retrospective he had a, a there's a big story um big interview with him in the new york times mm-hmm. and um which he is famously reclusive exactly so <laughs> that, that it was that was a big get to get that interview mm-hmm. and a kind of the focus of the interview was it doesn't matter what you think it means. He's like, I'm not painting this for you. Yeah. And it's a great it, article. It sounds, you know, it comes off sounding very egotistical or very mm-hmm. kind of like high and mighty, but it, it's absolutely true. I'm not painting these for you. Yeah. I'm painting these because this is, this is the best way I know how to deal with reality right now. He'd be doing it even if he wasn't making tens of millions. Absolutely. Dollars absolutely. Of absolutely. Yeah, he's uh, he's definitely one of my favorite artists as well, and it's somewhat hard to pinpoint. Um, but obviously, the flag work is what stuck out to me the most because I I love symbolism and um, just you know nation design, governmental design, mm-hmm. those kind of things, and like the way that he did it. And, and I think another important thing is like I wish there was an easier way to replicate what the sensibility was of the times that the art was created in. That's what I think pop art does so well is it it puts you back in that, that dichotomy of, you know, we've capitalism mm -hmm. and war and everything that was going on at the time, you know, when pop art, you know, first, you know, 
We have such a short memory, right? You know, as a collective, um, as a collective population, Mm -hmm. it's just like we forget things so quickly. Yep, absolutely. It's hard to. Yeah, I think that's kind of also, you know, like why people are going back and like trying to call out people for their bad behavior. Mm-hmm. And it's like, man, you don't even know what was going like. Exactly. You have, you have, again, going back to what you're talking about context. It's like, yeah. you don't know the framework, just the, the envelope in which this existed or you know, right. the genesis of it. And I mean, origin story that, I mean, that's, I know that's, you know, thrown around a lot, you know, with all the superhero movies and whatnot, but I think it's a very important concept. It's like, what are all the things that led to you right now? Yeah. 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 And I think that that's, um, it's an important to keep that open mind when you're yeah. when you're experiencing any sort of you know I think mm-hmm. when I was younger I'm like punk music I just yeah. don't like it right and then you start to understand the context of it why exactly. did it come to play why why did it come to exist right. and how did it form and right. what was the uh, the first steps of punk you right. know and and, and hip hop well exactly yeah hip hop I mean I think is you know a very very similar where it's you know you you hear the you know the the fist wrangling and the fist wrenching and whatnot all this this music is dangerous and it's and it's yeah. like you have no idea where you know what spurred this you know you've you've never woken up and the first thing in your mind was i hope i don't die today yeah it's like you don't you don't know what it's like in that situation so well and also inversely how it connected with people that weren't even experiencing that right like i mean it's i hip-hop is my favorite genre of music um and it's it helped me inform who I was more mm-hmm. than any other music did. Yep. Uh, and it's, um, you, you can't find that kind of authenticity. I feel in a lot of other music, it's very literal Absolutely. in some respects, mm-hmm. but then that is also used as a tool to like, you're always telling a story in hip hop for the mm-hmm. most part, but nowadays that's even changed right. it completely right. as well. So, and it's, the most relevant genre of music, I think, because it, it was born most recently. Right. And now I think everything has incorporated aspects of hip hop and it's just kind of spider webbing mm-hmm. into all these little niches and sub genres and refolding back on top of itself and creating something new. And there's the the distilled down, you know, whitewashed versions that it's like this is the like yeah. digestible hip hop and it's it's Which, it's family friendly and it's like, you know, every genre, you know, experiences that, you know, sure. people didn't like Elvis and, you know, so they, you know, there, you get like the, you know, the do up, you know, rock and roll that's coming out of, you know, yeah. after that, because people, you know, were afraid of Elvis and it's like, this is, you know, an amplified version of that. So totally. Yeah. Um, going back to, uh, to John's really quick and I'll, I'll tell you a story. Maybe this is a good story to close on. This sure. is, this will be, this is kind of the culmination of like all things me, um, you know, standing in the broad at the, you know, in front of target, was, you know, a real emotional point for me because when I was a, a freshman in college, I, I entered as a graphic design major and mm-hmm. I was, I was going to be a package designer. And that was, I just, that I figured that was like the, the best, uh, you know, combination of my interest. Cause I love to build things. You know, I, I knew I wanted to do something aesthetic. So it's like, okay, graphic design, that's a good way to get a job. You know, again, mm-hmm. what, what you're supposed to be doing. Yeah. And, uh, sometime during my, uh, my first semester, I was in the library at the design college and I'm flipping through um, Gardner's Art in America, which is, you know, if you've ever taken an art history class, you've had that book. That's kind mm-hmm. of like the Bible for art history. And we're just flipping ahead, seeing, you know, what we're going to be learning about that year. And there's Target on, on one of the pages. And I don't know why it really struck me. It was just kind of like, you know, there's, you know, gone through all the old masters and the Babylonian art and everything else. And then there was this and it was so stark and so shocking. And I'm looking in the, you know, the notes underneath it, you know, artist name and year and provenance and all that. And, um, 
the media was encaustic and collage. And I'd never mm -hmm. heard that word encaustic before. So I start doing some research. I'm like, okay, this is pretty amazing. I, I need to know more about this. So by the end of that semester, I changed my major to fine arts mm -hmm. and um, was uh, painting and printmaking was, was my program. And so I spent a lot of time in the print studio and then painting my entire college career. I had never touched acrylic or oil until after I graduated. Every painting class I did in college, I was painting encaustic. Hmm. And I had never really painted before, so that was really how I learned to paint. And definitely informed. And what is that process? So encaustic is where like oil paint, oil is the medium and that which carries the color. Mm -hmm. um, encaustic, it's melted beeswax, mm -hmm. which is kind of funny, like, you know, the bees were, yeah. were there early on. Um, Encaustic is one of the earliest mediums. Um, when you see like uh, Egyptian portraits, they're painted in encaustic, usually like on a on a wood panel. And it's interesting because you're you're working on a hot plate and you've got a bunch of cans with all the different colors. And you where you know with oil or acrylic, you can take your brush and step back and kind of plan the strokes. Um, encaustic, you've got about six seconds to go from can to to canvas before it, it dries on your brush. Yeah. yeah. So it's a, you know, you learn to be very deliberate about your work. Uh, and you can definitely be very expressive um, as you learn, you know, really to learn to work the medium. So through that, you know, I really um, gained a, you know, really interesting perspective and education on painting. And through that, you know, started following John's work more and more. And, you know, as good of a painter as he is, he's just as good of a printmaker. He's, a, you know, an absolute technician um, on the press. And, you know, he will... You know, part of, he will say that you know he has he can't be credited to that because because of the caliber of artist that he is he's worked with some you know the best print shops on the planet, and but he his work so lends itself to printmaking, and so you know I'd be really become a you know a devotee of of John's and just his work and his ethos and just his you know reason for being an artist, and so I graduate from college, and you know as a, an art major does I. I after I graduated, I did a pilgrimage and I went to New York <laughs> and, you know, I had to go kind of, you know, see the sites and go to the museums and the galleries and, you know, walk through Soho and just to kind of, you know, all those things I had learned about in our art history classes. And, uh, one day, um, I went to the Guggenheim and first time I'd ever been to New York, first time I'd been to the Guggenheim and just, you know, so taken by the, uh, just the architecture and the collection. And it's like, you know, here I, all these things I've been studying about and it's like, there it really is. And, you know, I had seen some, you know, great examples of art history. Like I said, the, the museum here is fantastic, but it's like, there's something, it's different in New York. I mean, you're at like the epicenter of the art world right there. And so I spent a couple hours in the Guggenheim and then walked out, walked down Madison Avenue for like 30 blocks, just like seeing in New York. And, um, the only, you know, this is pre Uber and everything. And it's like, I knew like how to get back to my hotel from the Guggenheim. So I walked back there and it was, you know, 10 till five. So the museum's open for a couple more minutes. So I'm going to go in and you'll go. So see a couple more things. And, um, I walk in and, uh, if you've never been to the Guggenheim, you've got, it's the spiral. And so there's, there's artwork all along the spiral, but then there are these side galleries off the spiral. Mm -hmm. And, uh, I walk into one of the galleries that's off the spiral and standing in there is Leo Castelli and his daughters. And, uh, for those of you who don't know, Leo Castelli is kind of like the godfather of pop art. He's a, you know, one of the most famed um, gallery owners and collectors in, you know, the history of American art mm -hmm. and, you know, responsible for giving birth to pop art. And so I'm like, oh my, this is like the culmination of like my being an artist. And so, you know, this, this you know, 
very, you know, noble, very short man standing in the gallery. And it's like, I knew exactly who he was when I, uh, you know, saw him. And so, you know, I'm, I'm nervous, you know, I'm, I'm, you know, I don't want to like embarrass myself, but I walk up to him and, you know, I said one thing to him. I said, Mr. Castelli, thank you for Jasper. What'd he say? He just nodded and gave me a pat, just kind of patted my shoulder and said, just kind of. That's crazy. Said, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> then what'd you do after that? I think I went on the side. I was like, oh my God, what just happened? <laughs> I mean, it was weird. I mean, it was, it was amazing. It was... It's almost divine. It really was. It's like, you know, I mean, that, that's, that's true art royalty. I yeah. mean, you know, transcending even the artist. Like, Leo Castelli was like the reason that New York is what it is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. That's something that you cling on to still. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. I will, you know, I've, I've had the, you know, I've, I've hung, on, hung on gallery walls with, you know, some big names mm-hmm. and I've, you know, met artists and I've, you know, worked with some big artists, but like there was something about like standing in the presence of Leo Castelli. Of the history. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. That's awesome, man. That is a great way to finish our first podcast of many. Of many. I yes. look forward to, you know, the next 13 episodes. Yeah, <laughs> dude, I do too. And I feel, uh, I'm going to be down in some of your honey and hopefully it'll give me more clarity in my mind. Well, the next uh, episode, we the, next the, the next show, we, you can do a review of the honey and then we'll, we'll go. Yes. From there. And dude, I mean, we, I know you have thousands of stories that we didn't even brush upon and we're already at two, almost two and a half hours. I'll, I'm happy to come back and we'll share more. All right, brother. And I'm going to check out your garden of Eden, uh, one of these days. Please soon. come over soon. Definitely, man. I, I love show, showing people around the garden. You meet the chickens, then we'll uh, sit at the fire pit and drink beer. <sighs> Sounds perfect. <laughs> Thank you, man. Thanks for your time. Oh, where can people find uh, your work and anything? Um, right now, I'm I'm pretty limited presence. I'm on Instagram mm-hmm. at uh, Tuktake, T-O-K-T-A-K-E. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't have a web presence right now. Um, once I kind of left production, I my site came down. Mm-hmm. Um it will tuktake.com will be back up at some point. Yeah. Um, but it'll be all my fine artwork. Sweet. And um and are those two podcasts that you did up um, still or do you know? <laughs> they're they they probably are somewhere. Uh I'll send you a link and you can uh you can maybe link them on I'll, I'll dig and see if I would love to. Stuff. I mean, I think you are a man of varied interest and so many different expertises in so many different fields. So I think it makes sense that you would have a podcast. Uh, but it is very time consuming it is so i'll just uh, let you be on mine all the time okay uh, there you go that, that that's a perfect solution and then uh yeah i'll i'll just uh, hijack your podcast and then i'll keep making art and then all the all the ideas are out there and then everything will come together absolutely right on brother. well until next time thanks brother. thank you Yes, 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 Mr. Blaine Deutsch on the ones and twos. Big fan of the Beastie Boys, and I'm a big fan of Blaine. He has so many interests. Uh, I'm going to be looking into a lot of them. There'll be a lot of links on the outline for this podcast. Carlo Ravelli sounds fascinating. I've never read any of his work yet. Uh, Robert Montgomery took a look at his some of his work. Very cool. Uh, outdoor type displays and also a bit of painting. What's coming up this week is... Halloween, my favorite holiday. Doesn't shy from what it is. No stupid cards. You just pass around candy, drink a little cider, maybe with hooch in it. It's going to be fun times this week. Falls on Thursday. Maybe there's a party on Wednesday. Maybe there's some parties this weekend too. I don't know. It's a great time of year. Hopefully the weather stays dry. I hope you guys are 
also staying dry or staying wet, if that's what you prefer. Uh, but mostly, I just hope that you're doing good. Call your parents. Call your mom. Call your dad. Tell them you love them. This is Kevin Kelly. I'm out. <laughs>